coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap. What's key at detecting a breach before it's become way, way too late that you've gotten fired? We'll share some key insights. Plus, what is the technical details behind that great cannon of China? We'll tell you. And then we'll break down that new French surveillance law that should be a warning to all of us. Plus, a great roundup, some fantastic questions, our answers, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 162 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We stream this episode live on April 23rd, 2015. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this here show goes on. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week in studio this week is our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher, Mr. Alan Jude. Hey there, Alan. Hey Chris, everybody. Hey Thanks buddy, are you sitting right next to me? Yes. That's very weird. I don't. Hi. I'm not really used to that. But of yeah, course, this like this doesn't happen very often. This is Linux Fest Eve Eve right now. Everybody's yeah. like getting in studio, uh, hanging out. This, this is the time of year where the studio goes from like a, a place of business to a clubhouse. <laughs> and now it's in clubhouse mode right now. Linux Fest will get here. Alan's going to be there talking ZFS, converting hundreds of Linux users to BSD. Uh, I think you're going to set a new record this year, Alan. I can Probably. feel it. Yeah. So we took advantage of it, and uh, we're going to record two episodes this week in studio with you guys. Mm -hmm. So if you're here live, and I see some of you are, it's going to be Indeed. really awesome to have you with us. I think it's going to be fun, and uh, I'm glad we're doing this now because I think the week after Linux Fest, we're going to need the rest. Yep. So it's a good thing we're recording this before Linux Fest. That way the tech snaps are top notch. Yep. All right. Well, uh, this is a story that um, is almost perfect. Because so often we talk about all these different hacks, all these different cyber threats, and so many times we're like, well, how did they do the attribution? And how do they detect these attacks? And how did they even know they were being attacked? Uh, and so, well, or, or specifically, how come it took them three months to find <laughs> out? Or, or like in the case of, what was it cryptic? It took them a year, right? <laughs> yeah. So uh, why does this happen, Alan? So uh, that is actually our first story from uh, netsecurity.org. Mm -hmm. Where do we start? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, they, they talk about how security spending is at an all-time high companies are spending lots of money right uh, but and you know security breaches at major organizations are still happening all the time happening a lot uh, and the impact of you know these advanced attacks is is reaching boardroom level attention right it's not yeah. just a problem for IT department anymore yeah. the the you know the executives are worried about it and you know the heightened attention to security has freed up funds uh, for many organizations to spend you know even more money to to mitigate these attacks but at the same time it doesn't seem to have actually solved the problem at all yeah funny how that works and it's a lot of times it seems like when we see these uh, mitigation techniques or or whatever you want to call it it's um it's it's always up in the sort of theory and idea level it's never really like in the practical or, level or it's it's a you know a practical thing that solves one very very specific practical problem that is probably not what's going to happen next time. You know, it's, right. it's that one time. It's like, all right, so Such so this happened point. last time. So we're going to detect exactly that signature for next time. That is And so huge. that same attack will never happen again. Yeah. But no one's going to try that one again. They're going to be I want to. I just want to replay back. I just Because what you just said is uh, so often when, when we're going through these stories and you see these companies, they deep dive, they bring in these super high-end um, cyber firms, the cybersecurity firms, and they come in there and they do all this analysis and they build out this, all this infrastructure. And we're going to do this and this and this to respond to this attack. I'm thinking of Target and I'm, right now I'm thinking of Sony. We're going we're gonna to make these steps to mitigate this risk. 
And it really doesn't solve the underlying problems that fundamentally the issue was you weren't patching your S or you had an open VPN to your vendor and that was configured yeah. improperly. Or your monitoring system was giving so many false positives you were just ignoring it. Right. Oh, and so yeah. perfect. A perfect example, yeah. Alan. Perfect example. And that and was so the target th one. these policies are not solving this. And in the case of Target, right? They had it in their they had it in their alert system all along, but because their alert system was so noisy, they just opted to ignore it. And yep. and these guidelines and things like that are not not addressing that at all. Exactly. And then, you know, so breach detection is in the top of the mind of all security people that are out there buying these solutions. Uh, and, you know, the field of, of security technologies claims to have all kinds of these breach uh, detection, advanced attack, mm -hmm. you know, but it's at an all-time noise level. There's, you know, anytime you have some system that claims to detect attacks, it detects too many things. Right. And so there's so much noise, everybody just tunes it out. And so then, I, and I've been guilty stuff. of it. Well, and, and part of the problem is that usually the big advanced attack starts with some small, minor things that could easily be dismissed as noise. Uh -huh. They hide down in the noise, and then you don't find out it was something bad until it's too late. And it's funny because it can be things as innocuous as a process on a box is crashing a lot. Yeah, and or, you just think, yeah, or that some box. new some new process has just shown up. <laughs> yeah, that one is less innocuous, but yes. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, a, a process crashing a lot. Yeah, it's like or, that's or, really annoying, but. It's like, meh. Or, well, you know, we it's, used it's because a, somebody's trying to exploit it. We used it a little bit more bandwidth than I was expecting this month. Yeah, that, that's definitely a big one. Yeah, I can see how that one would be. Yeah. All right. Uh, so they say uh, security analytics platforms endeavor to bring, you know, substantial awareness to security events by gathering and analyzing a broader set of data. And they yeah. always, always want to suck in more and more and more data. But the problem is that the, the greatest harm to an organization are usually found in and prioritized with greater accuracy. But the, the problem is... When you get more and more data, that's more and more stuff you have to look through right. and, and more and more chance of more noise. just getting drowned out. It's yep. sort of the argument against the NSA's bulk collection is like, what's the exactly. point? Of, how do you go so to much, that haystack? Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, um, you know, the other thing is it's not just the noise, too, but uh, talking about going through and looking at previous hacks and things like that, you know, you look at the Sony hack and the Sony Entertainment hack and the, 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 political, the political conditions uh, the, uh, and the media, they blamed it on... North Korea, yeah. right? But the reality is, anybody who has some technical familiarity with this kind of thing is probably pretty convinced it was a, it was at least, if not an inside job, completely uh, very much well, aided I, I, by an uh, insider. In particular, it was someone that's not inside anymore, but who had inside right. knowledge, right? And and they a, did a reason what, to have a bone to pick with. And they Sony. worked with whomever or by themselves or whatever. Exactly, Lizard Squad, whatever. I don't. I don't it wasn't Lizard Squad. It was yeah. some Brazilian group. Yeah, whatever. Right. But, the, yeah, but my point exactly. is, that's. That's the thing we need explored. That's the thing we need discovered. That's the real threat to your network out there is those people. Mm -hmm. That's the true threat, not North Korea, right? right. Not, not, and, and if, if, if when these things happened with Sony Entertainment and we took something as major as and said, look, at, at a company, the scale and stature of Sony Entertainment was brought down by an insider, that if we shared that information properly, that would genuinely help corporations protect themselves and realize what their true priority is. But because yeah. we obscure it for political reasons to blame it on North Korea, we are actually doing a disservice to other companies for future protection because their priorities are misaligned with the actual reality of the situation. Well, there's I that. I think it's a disservice. Then, yes, and then the second thing is, if we try to use Sony as an example and, and pick out the exact methods they use to attack them, and safeguard all of our businesses against that, well, the next attacker is not going to use exactly the same methods, <laughs> right? We have to, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. signatures, we need broader signatures that are more 
you know, I'm I'm seeing this style of behavior that's looking like an attack, rather than I'm seeing this very specific, you know, the hash of this file matches the one we saw at Sony. So do you think that's? Do you think it's possible to have a system intelligent enough to to notice that the user is doing something unorn, un, un, unusual? Well, uh, so the first part of the stuff that they're looking at now is what's called security information and event management, or S E I or S I E M, uh, and it says, well, most uh, S IEM products uh, have the ability to collect, store, and analyze security data. Uh, the meaning of what can be pulled out from that data, such as you know security data and so on, uh, depends on how the data is reviewed, which usually mm. ends up requiring a person. Yeah. Uh, and how well uh, a product can uh, perform uh, automated anal- uh, analytics of that stuff and kind of pull out things, compared to you know when users are you're saying, give me a report where every time we saw this happen, right? Uh, it's just not the same, and that's kind of what sets the different products apart and where I don't think it's it's quite there yet because it still takes too much human effort and yeah you need a happy middle ground because it almost that. seems like you'd need some human effort to look at what the system's well, detecting and then and and then you know like you need like a curated report for the human to go through and determine what's important or not exactly yeah so it can try to drown out the noise and pick certain things but i think in the end what you need is kind of a, a a security platform that yeah. consists of multiple different components. So you need the SIEM and looking at events and things that happen, and you need your regular monitoring reporting, and you need what you just talked about, right. user behavior analytics. Right. So is, they're calling that UBA? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I love it. Uh, it's an example of uh, security analytics that are already gaining more buyer attention. So what uh, user behavior analytics allows the user activity to be analyzed uh, much in the same way a uh, fraud detection system works for monitoring credit cards. Okay. Right? The oh. UBA systems are uh, looking at you know the users logging in and stuff and be like, that user doesn't normally log into that system. That seems a little suspicious, but okay. That user just logged into another machine they don't normally log into. Google kind of does this like today with Gmail and, and things yeah. like that. So when I log in from Japan, it's like, you don't normally log in from Japan. That, that's maybe you're mad. Yeah. yeah, so that's user behavior analytics. Or, you know, if... A user starts deleting files or, or copying files they don't normally access. And, and a bunch of, you know, if there's a, a, so what you want is kind of like a scoring system. It's like, all right, you did one thing that looks strange. That's one point. Yeah. That doesn't set off an alarm. Yeah, but you just, did a yeah. bunch of things over the last week that yeah. looks strange. Right. You're either an insider who's, you know, grabbing some data before they quit to take it to a competitor or you're, you know, a uh, you know, the secretary shouldn't be accessing that. Her machine probably right. has a virus. Now, this sounds super great from like a network administrator standpoint where I'm trying to keep track of a lot of users and yeah. I'm worried about an insider attack. Where it scares the crap out of me is a citizen of a country that requires an informed public and a free press. And if this kind of system were to actually be really usable, of course, the first people to do this would be somebody like the NSA. Right. And a so, system like this might prevent a, an Edward Snowden in the future. If if if, yep. if the system could have noticed Edward Snowden logging in at odd times that weren't maybe related to any open tickets and, uh, with and credentials he didn't large need. quantities of files. Right. And copying down large quantities of files and with using WGET to connect internal resources. And if, if it could have noticed these things and alerted somebody ahead of time or locked him out, it might have prevented a pretty big revelation for the public, which some people think was good for uh, a, a d- right. democracy to have. Maybe some people don't. That's that's the side. But if it the same thing is like happening inside a bank with account information, right? You that's the stop. line. Yeah. A bank or or even Boeing, you know, somebody wants to sell the latest uh, innovation to Airbus or vice versa, right? There, you need to be able to protect that. So that's the line you walk. But you could see where you could create a system that would be pretty scary too. Yeah. Well, especially if the NSA's got black boxes in, uh, you know, all the trunks on the internet or whatever, and they can start using the same behavior analytics on users on their home connection. That's, you know, 
You're only oh, supposed to be monitored geez, by this type of stuff in now, a corporate Come on network, now, right? now you're really freaking me yeah, out. It does, it's not happening yet. So. <laughs> Thanks, Alan. <laughs> so we have a chance to stop it before it starts. Okay. Because once it starts, it's harder to make it go away. That's like Skynet. But anyway, uh, so user behavior analytic systems are effective at detecting meaningful security events, such as a compromised user account or a rogue insider. So it helps you against mm. A, hackers from the outside taking over yep. somebody on the inside. Yep. Or somebody on the inside just Ed. being that. Yeah. Uh, and then... Uh, although the, many of those UBA systems can analyze more data than just user profiles, such as like devices and geolocations, mm -hmm. oh, this user is doing it from their phone. That's strange. Or this user is doing it from China. Or That's this user is doing it from a location, even if it's you know like uh, uh, like so, something I thought of in the past is like this user is doing it from a location where we believe uh, another person who we uh, are suspecting is doing activity, and right. they could do they could track it that way too, and say so even the area they've been in, and just let's look at where these people have gone and analyzing it from that standpoint. Yeah. And then, you know, you still have an opportunity to enhance the analytics to include even more data points uh, that increase the accuracy of and hopefully maybe detect a breach. Love it. Uh, but as security analytics platforms grow in maturity and accuracy, a driving factor of the innovation is how much data can be brought in to be analyzed. So you want as much data as possible to analyze. The problem is you just need the, the output needs to be condensed. And, yeah, and I have never really seen that work well. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it, part of it is deciding what data you actually want to capture. Yeah. Like capturing the user's location all the time, maybe it's useful, maybe it's not. Well, so I, the bank I worked at, you know, we had we had several checkpoint firewalls at, at different entry points on the network, and uh, just so many events were generated, so many, so many, the high yep. volume events, and I I think it was like a regulatory thing actually that said keep it all. You can decide what you want to sift through and audit, but we want to be able to go back and look at everything if we have to. And, and I think that's a reasonable approach. It's just you the have volume to. Volume was insane though. Yeah. Uh, and, and so you need some really heavy-duty sifting stuff. Yeah, we had... And I mean, it has to be automated. It was, it was The system we had used got iterated upon three different times while we were using it, and starting from you know MySQL to Oracle and all this different stuff. And it, and it constantly was the front end that could, that could parse and analyze all of that data was never catching up to the amount of data and the new types of sensors we could throw at it. Uh, yeah. So I, I don't know. I'm a little skeptical. But, yeah, uh, so theoretically that works, but in practice... Uh, Maybe be know, different now. that much data is, is very hard. Maybe different technologies have improved now, but back back yeah. then it was it well, was always. We, we could process the amount of data you had back then very fast. Now, yeah. the problem is now we'd have even more data. more data. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. yeah. So it seems like it seems like the horse race would never end. But yeah. So is it, however, the amount of context that can be brought into the analysis is what's really important, right? And without the context, all those are just isolated events that make no sense together. Yeah. But having the context with them makes a big difference. Yeah, right? context so, is huge. So, you know, analytic systems on average tend to do better analyzing, you know, lean metadata-like data rather than having all the stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, that's kind of where the NSA went, right? If we Instead of trying to look inside everybody's phone calls, we just look for people that made a bunch of mm -hmm. calls and, and they couldn't like, store it all anyways exactly and it's easier to process metadata exactly and then you have all of those uh, handy uh, justifications of privacy protection yeah. <laughs> uh, but you know uh, this allows them to quickly and on almost real time produce interesting findings uh, the challenge in this approach is that major security events such as breaches don't happen all at once right uh, it may start with an early indicator something happens mm -hmm. you know there was uh, uh, the application on the web server crashed because mm -hmm. somebody, you know, buffer overflowed it and, and got a remote code execution. Yeah. Well, we I don't know, know that happened. Yeah. All yeah. we know is that web server crashed. Right. We see a patch and, and then, whatever's down. Yeah. A few hours later, another minor event. Right. Uh, which turned in, you know, the following days or months later, then there was a data leakage event. 
and right. then right. and then right. something else happened. Yeah. And then yeah. in the end, those three things are looked at as a single incident. Then things start to make sense. Yes. But if you only look at the leakage, right. you don't know how did they get in. Yeah. Well, if we connect these other events. Right. But then in the end, it's like, well, how can you connect three crashes? months to get you there, though? Right. Well, the stuff happened three months apart. Yeah. But in, in the end, how do you know that, well, that, that my web server crashed? Does that mean that's related to this or is it completely unrelated? Right. And, and you know, the, the, the stuff is not all there yet. Boy, yeah, it makes it just makes when you think about the uh, when you when you think about the the real tool set that administrators have to tackle this problem yeah. today at the ground level is logs. Yeah, and that just and, and most logs don't contain the information you end up wanting. Well, and they don't they don't show you the event. They don't show you the broader picture. They show you Apache crashed, and that yeah. is such a you're so down in the trenches with that bit of information. There's you, how could you even be it's expected to, like if you don't have a backtrace to look at what part of Apache yeah. crashed? Yeah, it, it's it's unreasonable to think yeah. you might zoom out and go, is this part of an attack? And if you did every time, you'd be a you'd be a wreck every time Apache crashed. Yeah, so that's <laughs> just there's no winning. Yeah. Uh, but you know that's why. Uh, the overall priority in this instance made up of lesser events, and now uh, the priority is much higher, and that's why we have to have these lookbacks where we, once we see something higher priority, we have to look through everything that happened yeah. in the last two months or something, that makes sense. and be like, hey, yeah. is there anything in that yeah. that seems to fit into this this pattern? That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and so ultimately, how actual human users interface with the output of huge amounts of data analytics will greatly determine if the technology is adopted or deemed to produce useful information. Because if I can't get useful information out of it, paying all this money for this software yeah. <laughs> solution is, is a waste of time. That's how I felt uh, at the yeah. time. Like other disciplines that have leveraged large data analytics to discover new things or produce new output, uh, visualization of that data greatly affects its adoption. And uh, we talk a bit more in uh, later in this episode or next episode about attack maps and how while we, you know, everybody's thinking, oh, yes, we're visualizing what's happening. It's yeah. so useful. But Attack if you map. think about it, you know, the ones you see, it's just like a constant stream of things going back and forth. You, yeah. don't, you don't see the three, the you know, the little event and then the other little event right. and then the data leakage three months later uh-huh. as being related. Right. And so those attack maps, you know, when they don't tell you what type of attack it is, really it's they're show. just showy things that get you to buy something. Yeah, yeah. It's literally just fancy animation. I mean, on they're the neat. Put it up in your lobby if you want, I guess, if you have an yeah, IT company. But, but the problem is that the security solution provider uh, takes that up to your management, shows them. They're like, oh, yay. And they buy that. And then it turns yeah. out, well, the product doesn't actually yeah. do anything for it. Right. Yeah. Uh, so, yes, well, visualization is important. It can't be. The only thing, right? You have to have actual good data to visualize. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it's mm-hmm. just pretty pictures. Yeah, uh, I uh, <clears throat> I was thinking back through uh, through like uh, one of the big differences to when we had all this data to manage till now is like big data is like a is like a buzzword now, and like there yeah. are there, there are a lot more tools to process this stuff than there used to be. So yeah, it is most changing big data a bit. stuff is bogus. But it makes you think. It, it really does make you think. Like you you have to be ready to tie things together and. Make it click because it's really your best tool right now is going to be clever. Stay clever and just start thinking about this stuff in the broader context yep. when you can, uh, and watch that stuff. Yeah, uh, you know, keep your eyes peeled and uh, and make sure you're not getting drowned in uh, notifications and shit. <laughs> yeah, it seems like that's really your your first line of of defense is making sure you have a really good offense on your monitoring. Make sure your well, monitoring is in, tight. In particularly, you need to be able to tell every time something happens, uh, what is different now than was 
there yesterday. Yeah. And stuff, right? And don't so, don't uh, let like, the false alert slide too long. Yeah, right? exactly. Keep it tight. Yeah, if if you keep getting false alerts, look into why and and, yeah. and tune your your warning levels and your crit levels and so on. Because otherwise, it's uh, just not worth and it. And be careful not to tune too much the other way. I've done that before. I was like, mm. you know, don't nag me about this thing until <laughs> it's consistently <laughs> yeah. not worked for like five monitoring checks at five minutes. It's like, well, okay, so now the thing's down for half an hour before my phone beeps. Like, that's <laughs> that's not a good enough solution anymore. No. So it's like, all right, we have to have a more reliable way to monitor it. Yeah. Well, it's an interesting problem. Yeah. I'd like to hear what people out there have done. Email us, techsnap mm-hmm. at jupiterbroadcasting.com. Fire it off to us, and we'd love to read it in a future show. Any other thoughts on that story? Nope. All right, well, then I'll tell you about it with something that's a great solution. That's our friends over at Ting. Go to techsnap.ting.com. Techsnap.ting.com will support this show, and that's a great reason to go, uh, especially as we enter our fourth year, mm-hmm. which I'll talk about here in just a second. But uh, it's also going to give you a $25 discount off your first device. And if you have a Ting-compatible device, they'll give you a $25 service credit. Boom! When you yes. switch to Ting, go to techsnap.ting.com to get started. And if you're a small business, definitely check them out. Did you bring your Firefox OS phone in here? Yes, by I did. Is it with you right now? Uh, it's in the other room. Oh, okay. Yeah, Alan's got a Firefox OS phone. We might throw on Ting a little bit later today. Yes. How how do you do that? You say? Well, that's actually it's a great question. The process to get Alan here. So here's Alan right here. Look, I can yeah, I can I just I point can. at Alan. This here is, ladies and gentlemen. This here is Alan Jude. Alan Jude is a Canadian currently visiting the United States of America. Alan Jude has a phone with him that doesn't have a GSM card. Alan Jude can go over to techsnap.ting.com and right there, $9 SIM card. $9 SIM card will put you on the new Ting GSM network, or you can get a CDMA one, whichever one you want, Alan. But of course, Mine's I, GSM. Yeah, I think you're, yeah, yeah, your phone's GSM. So there I you go. I actually got two SIM cards slots, so I could have my, my really? personal SIM, and then I- uh, You can have a work one. SIM in there too, huh? Well, or, or uh, my regular one, so that I get my phone calls on my regular phone number, but- uh, travel one, so whatever country I'm in, I can use the data plan or whatever from there and save yeah. the roaming fees. And t- Ting is so perfect for when you're down here. Uh, and yeah. you know, the other thing I like about Ting as well is uh, Ting's approach is it's it's really it's it's about you. It's 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 focused on the account. You yeah. can have as many devices as you want on the line, and it's a flat six dollars per device. Uh, so it's not like one contract per device. It's Put all your devices on your account. They'll pool together on the minutes. You just pay $6 for that line. Because yeah. with Ting, you just you just pay for your minutes, your messages, and your megabytes. Ting adds that all up. Whatever bucket you fall into, that's what you pay at the end of the month. And they have an incredible dashboard to manage all of it, an Android and iOS app. And I love the per-account approach because I've got three phones. They're not all mine. but Well, they are mine, but I, mean, I don't use them all. Right. Uh, I have three phones, uh, and I'm, I'm going to put a tablet on there. I would not want to have to have individual data lines and individual accounts or uh, contracts or whatever yeah. on each one. No, I just put them on my Ting well, account. And, no and contracts, things, no early termination. It's so nice. Yeah. With a regular uh, phone provider, you'd have to buy you know at least a gigabyte of data on each of those phones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And meanwhile, if, across the four devices yeah. – you're one of them is one or two. One of them is going to use like the most data, and the rest are barely using any yeah, at all. So one of them yeah. is going to use like 1.1 yeah. gigabytes yeah. and go get charged right. over it. Well, and what's actually and it's so the rest are going to add like, up to less. One of them almost never leaves the studio, yeah. so it's always on Wi-Fi. Mm-hmm. So the data is zero on that phone. It's yeah. so slick, and uh, you know, also Alan, like if you ever like uh, anything ever happened to the Firefox OS phone, they've got a bunch of great value phones. They do. Forty-seven dollar Kyocera uh, feature phone, mm-hmm. ninety-one dollar uh, Moto G. That's an incredible deal. These are unlocked. Yeah. You own these. Uh, they. Got the HTC One Desire for one hundred and thirty dollars. They got the MiFi Fifty Five Eighty. That MiFi, right that there. MiFi is sweet, man. I had something like that in yeah. Japan. Yeah, awesome. well, and what's great about that is no contract, and so you just pay for when you use that when you use that exactly. hotspot. Of course, they got the iPhone. They've got the iPhone uh, Four as low as one hundred and thirty-seven dollars, and then they've got your big phones. They got this. They got the. They have the new One Plus One. 
at the Ting store. They've even got the BlackBerry Z30, which is not a bad phone. Nope. And they have the HTC M, uh, M1 uh, E8. And they also have the Moto X2 second gen, a fantastic phone. Yes. Uh, much like Alan's um, uh, Nexus 6, but just a little bit smaller. And then if you want the phone that Alan's rocking these days, they also are now selling the uh, Motorola Nexus 6 directly yep. from Ting. That's so a good to, price for it, too. Yeah, go to techsnap.ting.com to get started. And also, if you're curious about uh, what Ting's up to these days, uh, they just uh, posted an update about how their fiber internet service is coming along. Ooh, yes. Yep. You can go to techsnap.ting.com and read their blog. They also have a blog post up there about Google's new wireless, if you're curious about yes, that. Yes, uh, we talked a bit about that on Tech Talk yeah, today, this morning. That's right. Uh, and uh, the... Ars Technica had done a, a comparison of the different phone providers and said, well, it's kind of hard to do Ting because their deal is so much better. Yeah, It's like, yeah. y- instead of paying for one, three, yes. five gigabytes of data, you pay for exactly how yeah. much you use. Yeah, And so, Ours even like, though if you used happen to use exactly three gigabytes, it would be like $6 more than Google. If you happen to use 2.5 gigabytes instead of three, you're actually going to save a bunch of money. Yeah, and I loved they're like essentially like Ting's not really comparable to anybody else because Ting doesn't do it like anybody else. Yeah. Well, and, and the funny thing is like when, as soon as we saw the Google uh, Project Fi thing, whatever they call like, it, yeah. uh, so they're reselling the same network as Ting. But why wouldn't they have? I, I would have expected Google to do the Ting style. Yeah. I, yeah. I really was surprised I, that I was, Google did the old-fashioned per silly device thing, thing yeah. which I'm not big on, and like you have to buy this much data, which I'm not big on that anymore. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, I, like I kind of expect maybe but, it's, maybe it's more Amazon that I would expect to do the AWS type model of pay for what you use. Yeah, yeah, you know. Uh, but I'll tell you one thing. Uh, I'm super happy for Ting because uh, yeah. the, the, something that I've noticed is now Ting is by default part of the conversation. Now. Yeah, basically like all in every compa- comparison yeah, of cell phone providers, that now, right Ting there is, right is huge there. because like so it, like if if a handful of Ting customers go try out Google Wireless, okay. But like at the same time, like tens of thousands of more people are going to find out there's such a thing as MVNOs and why it's a great deal and why you don't have to go with the big duopolies. Yep. And I think on, on the long term, I think that's a much better deal for Ting because when you compare the two services side by side, Ting's a better deal. And for geeks like us who have multiple devices or want to have multiple devices, it's it's then it, then it's just, I it's just no comparison. Because yeah. we yeah. have a bunch of devices just to make sure video streaming works on all these different types of devices. Yeah. Oh, and man, I know, right? Money, like, yeah. Our bill to tell us is like five hundred dollars, and for Ting, I bet it would be like a hundred and fifty. Yeah, because you just six dollars a line, and then exactly. just your usage. Yeah, and a lot of them we're, we're testing on Wi-Fi, not not the data. Right. But, yeah. but if you want the device, they won't sell it to you without a big data. Oh program. man, that's rough. That's rough. TechSnap.ting.com, and a big thanks to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. All right, Alan, this next story, this this uh, headline had caught my attention, and I rolled mm-hmm. my eyes at first, and then you broke it down for me a little bit, and I realized there's actually something to it. It's being called China's Great Cannon. Right, uh, which is funny, because basically, you know, there's the Great Wall of China, and there's the Great Firewall of China. <laughs> yes. This is the Great Cannon of China. And I, and I don't like, know why they didn't word it that way, but yeah. anyway. Yeah, the great. Yeah, okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank yes. You. But all right. Uh, so uh, the post that we're pointing out here from uh, Citizen Lab, which is actually uh, part of the University of Toronto. Oh. Okay. Uh, the post describes uh, their analysis of China's Great Cannon, uh, which is the term they came up with for an attack tool that we identified as being separate from, but physically located with the Great Firewall of China. Okay. Uh, the first known usage of this Great Cannon is was in the recent large-scale novel denial of service attack. Uh, on both GitHub and the servers used for greatfire.org. So greatfire is uh, the uh, uh, nonprofit type thing run 
to allow people inside China to get around the Great Firewall of China with a VPN thing, right? So they rent servers all over and, and hide the traffic and try to let people in China get access to the real internet without going through the Great Firewall of China. So China wants to stop that. Yeah. So they built an attack tool that's part of the Great Firewall of China. Okay. Uh, but it's it's separate from it, but it's part of it. And basically, as you can see, what they do here when uh, anybody that was going through the Great Firewall of China, they rewrote uh, some of the content of the websites they were visiting, uh, specifically uh, Baidu which is a big Chinese search engine, uh, and made them load content from the Great Firewall or in GitHub's web pages. So they actually made some of the JavaScript files uh, for Baidu try to load from GitHub. And so all of a sudden, basically, the entire country of China was hammering on GitHub every time they loaded a page. Oh, my gosh. So what they essentially did is they used their own user base. Yeah. As... They basically turned every machine in China into part of the botnet. <laughs> <laughs> by doing man-in-the-middle traffic expansion and, and stuff. <laughs> That's, they can just do this for anything. Yeah. So this is, uh, so there was a fear back in the day that Flash would be able to do this. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. We, we, that, that was why up until Flash 9, there was no ability in Flash to directly connect to, uh, make a socket to a website or something. Really? Because you could make a popular Flash game and have like millions of people using it, like, you know, like Farmville on Facebook, and you could just have it denial of service people today. Yeah, that makes a lot of so sense. What, I just never what, thought about it, but yeah. What Flash added in Flash 9 was the concept of a Flash policy server, where it would call out to the place and be like, uh, do you allow Flash connections into you? And if they return an XML file that says yes, and it can list restrictions, then the Flash makes it allowed to use a connection. Huh. But basically, they uh, China has, has implemented something that allows them to, basically, by doing man-in-the-middle traffic inspection and modification, to create turn the entire country into a botnet. Uh, and it was affecting stuff outside of that as well. And uh, so it wasn't easy for GitHub to just try to, you know, block all traffic from China or something like that. And I don't think they want to do that anyway because there's yeah. a lot of legitimate stuff that does happen uh, from China. There are, you know, lots of developers in China that are writing code for open source project. Hmm. Uh, so anyway, the story. Uh, on March 16th, greatfire.org observed that servers they were rented uh, all over the place to make... Uh, Blocked websites available in China were being targeted by a distributed denial of service attack. Hmm. Then on March 26, about 10 days later. This is of this year? Yeah. Okay. Uh, two GitHub pages uh, run by greatfire.org also came out of the same type of attack. Uh, both attacks appeared at uh, services designated to circumvent the Chinese censorship stuff of the Great Firewall of China. Uh, so the report released from uh, greatfire.org fingered uh, malicious JavaScript returned by the Baidu search engine as a source of the attack, and Baidu, the search engine, uh, you know, denied that they were responsible or that they were compromised. <laughs> Originally, what uh, right. they thought happened was that the servers at the search engine got hacked and were made to return this incorrect stuff to cause the attack. Okay. But then the Baidu people are like, no, our server's returning the right answer. Somewhere in between, the traffic's being modified to have this wrong answer. <laughs> uh, you know. Then they had uh, several previous technical reports that suggested that the Great Firewall of China orchestrated these attacks by injecting malicious JavaScript into the Baidu uh, site's HTTP connection. Yeah, yeah. And uh, this post describes our analysis of the attack where we were able to actually observe this up until uh, April 8th, which is only a couple weeks ago. Uh, so we showed that while the attack infrastructure is co-located with the Great Firewall of China, uh -huh. the attack was carried out by a separate offensive system with different capabilities and design than we've seen uh, previously as part of the Firewall of China, and that's why they called it the Great Cannon instead of the Great Firewall. Uh, okay. Uh, the Great Cannon is not simply an extension of the Great Firewall, but a distinct attack tool that hijacks traffic to uh, uh, hijacks traffic that's sent to certain addresses or presumably from certain individual IP addresses 
and could arbitrarily replace unencrypted content as a man-in-the-middle attack. So they can do censorship-type stuff, or they can use it as a, an attack tool. And then the report page uh, is broken down into a number of sections uh, that go into more detail. So in section two, they uh, locate and characterize the great canon as a, a separate system. So this is how they figured out that it's is that not this part of the firewall. Is that one? I think so. Okay. Uh, th at the top, there's a list of the sections. And they're yeah, I'll, I'll dig yep. while you... Okay. Uh, so yeah, section two uh, talks about how they figured uh, out that the great canon is a separate system. Yeah. Then uh, section three analyzes the distributed denial of service uh, logs that they had in the, and try to characterize the different types of DDoS attack that they used mm -hmm. uh, and uh, look at the, the different systems that were affected by it. Mm -hmm. In section four, they present their attribution of the great uh, canon and why they think this was actually from the government of China. So rather than just saying, we think it was the government of China, yeah. they actually have a whole section explaining why they think that and That's what so their they're, evidence is. They're backing up their tough talk. Yeah. Well, it's from a university, not a security right. research company. Right. I like this. Yeah. Uh, so section five addresses uh, the, the policy context and the implications. So they talk about you know how this actually affects government and politics. And then section six addresses the possibility of using the great canon uh, for target exploitation to actually uh, use oh. this to... Uh, take advantage of the users going through it or the sites and uh, other evil things you could do with it. And uh, so, yes, uh, that kind of leads me to the question, uh, what, wh which site is going to be the target of this next? And uh, what kind of defenses can we build against something like this? What do you think? Well, uh, it's hard to say. You know, uh, As we saw with the uh, SSH psychos thing, uh, some top-level providers like Level 3 and, and Hurricane Electric are perfectly willing to block off certain ranges of IP addresses. Mm -hmm. Now, trying to block the entire country of China next time they try to do an attack, that's going to affect a lot of legitimate traffic. <sighs> but at the same time, is it maybe the only way to send a message to the Chinese government that that behavior is unacceptable? Well, uh, I, I don't think they have that flexibility anymore because China is becoming such an important... Uh, yeah, I think uh, uh, too many customers of the transit providers like, well, we need to reach our servers in China. Like, there's just so much. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. They're too much of an important customer. Like, how could yeah. they, they have they have a a legitimate amount of leverage now? Yeah, but maybe uh, it'll be possible for something like uh, GitHub specifically to say, hey, we want to block all traffic coming from this range of IPs that is attacking us. Yeah, because uh, yeah. So uh, GitHub did a fairly good job trying to mitigate that, and especially. Uh, yeah, so this the, is what was some total, types of attack that we don't normally see. What was their total downtime from this? Uh, I don't know. It was kind of uh, mostly it was just that uh, their latency and error rates on their APIs and stuff got kind of high. So the site mostly worked, but every once in a while it would but just the not. Whole and site, come back. the whole site went on, got under. The whole site was screwed up because they didn't like one project. Yeah, which it kind of points out that uh, especially with something like uh, Google Code uh, shutting down and trying to tell everybody to move to GitHub. Yeah, we kind of ended up in a monoculture of everybody has to use GitHub. And that's and one service that Mic can be taken Microsoft down. Microsoft has moved all of their stuff, or is moving all their stuff over to GitHub. Well, their like, open stuff stuff, yeah. Yeah, the .NET stuff. And yeah, and, and, you know, nobody's used SourceForge in a while because it's all CBS. Source what? Not SourceForge. even familiar with it. Well, when they started putting uh, uh, totally adware into the downloaders of your yeah. open source projects, that was a that's when people drew the line for that one. Chris didn't like that. Yeah, nobody did. No. You know what I do like? Stuff. Our next sponsor. <laughs> DigitalOcean. Head over yes. to DigitalOcean.com and use the promo code of Absolute Knowledge and Supreme Power, SnapOcean. That'll mm -hmm. give you a $10 credit, SnapOcean. It's one word. It's lowercase. Uh, yo, wait, wait. What? You're not familiar with DigitalOcean? Oh, well, boy, do I have something to tell you. DigitalOcean is a simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way for you 
to spin up your own cloud server. Now, mm -hmm. what does that mean? What that really means is in less than 55 seconds, you can go to DigitalOcean. You can get a server set up in the cloud that you have root access to. They have an HTML5 console, so that way you can watch that thing from post all the way up to boot. So if you screw something up, you can troubleshoot it. That is so, yep. so, so nice when you have a remote system. And it's super nice that you don't have, to have Java installed or Flash or anything like that. Yep. It's really written in Go, too, which is really neat. So that's DigitalOcean. It's like super crazy fast. Virtual machine, you're going to get going in under 55 seconds, HTML5 console. Boom. You got that? You're wrapping your brain around that? Now you're saying, Chris, it's a good price. How good of a price? You ready for this? Remember, you can get started crazy fast, and you're going to support this show by trying this out, and you love playing with cool stuff. Keep all that in mind when I tell you the rest of this, and Snap Ocean, of course. You can get started in less than 55 seconds. What does that mean? What does that mean? What does that mean? Think about this. You can create a server in less than a minute, and you can start at less than $5 a month for 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20 gigabyte SSD, one so, CPU, and a terabyte SSD. SSD. So, 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 you know, the I slowest thing about virtualization is usually the disk. Oh, no kidding. And man. when it's SSD backed, it's, it's an array of SSDs. So it's really, really, really yeah. fast. And they just put their, they just have, they just set up a new data center in uh, Germany. Yep. Frankfurt. Yep, yep. And that sucker, uh, they put like these crazy fast uh, SSDs in there. So if you really want to, if you really want to party, uh, go set up a uh, droplet in their new uh, German data center because that is yes. looking real nice. It'll be interesting to see in the future if they uh, stop advertising SSDs and start advertising NVMe. Ooh, is that... Uh, uh, it's basically the exact same thing as an SSD, but it doesn't pretend to be a hard drive. Right. You write, you write right to the flash? Yeah. Cool. Uh, uh, but also, uh, the other great thing that they always fail to mention in this is that with your droplet, you get a full gigabit connection, not just 100 megabits. Yeah. So compared to other droplets, that's a big improvement. Yeah, that's uh, nice. And, you know, you also get a terabyte of bandwidth. That's like, that's actually a lot for $5. <laughs> yeah, that is, right? I know. <laughs> we that... charge a lot more than $5 for a terabyte of bandwidth <laughs> at Scale Engine, I tell you that. Uh, and uh, so they've also got data centers in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, and London. And they've got this amazing control panel that's super intuitive. A really straightforward way to manage your droplet. You can do DNS management, snapshots. You can deploy templates. You can Create new machines, destroy machines, transfer machines, one-click application deployments, and then you can replicate all that functionality with their straightforward, brand new, recently updated, super awesome API. Version yep. 2.0 just came out. And, and they support FreeBSD as of March, April, February. February. Uh, yeah, it's been a couple of months now. And, and, and when you say they support FreeBSD, they really went all in. I was yep. over, have, uh, 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 over at their community section, and they have where they have tons of great tutorials so you can just you know yes. really get kicking on your uh, droplet. And they've already got a bunch of good stuff up here for FreeBSD. Even though yeah, they made sure all that was ready uh, for launch day. That's that, one of the things that they're That is really – and then this is what I'm talking about, man. They take this great technology, these great connections, SSD drives, this great interface, and then when they go in on something, they really go all in. Like so, so with the FreeBSD, that's that's a great example. And then when they rolled out CoreOS, they didn't just like go put like a CoreOS. They didn't just go get like the CoreOS ISO and make some virtual machines. They worked with the CoreOS project to be uh, an official channel partner, so that way they're getting updates directly from CoreOS that they can then roll out at a at a nice reasonable pace to their customers. Like they did it all in. They did it the right way, just like they're doing with FreeBSD. And it's, and, and go look at all these great tutorials to help you really get going. And remember. Use our promo code, SNAPOcean, get a $10 credit, then rock these tutorials. You will you really will kick yourself if you haven't done this yet. It's, yeah. it is, it's, it's a no-brainer. And you just pay $5 and you get $10 in credit. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? $5 for three months of virtual machines. Yeah. Hey, uh, you mentioned uh, Tech Talk today, earlier today, yes. and thanks DigitalOcean for sponsoring the TechSnap program. You mentioned uh, on, tech, on Tech Talk that we were going to talk about this crazy French surveillance legislation mm -hmm. that, ho that hopefully g will give us a little bit of a warning over here. But yeah. can you break well, it down for us? Yeah. So uh, this is a new French intelligence bill that's uh, provoked concern among the country's top lawmakers. 
uh, international NGOs who are saying it's a civil rights and human rights violation, but also all the IT industry in France. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay, uh, so what's going on? So according to the French Human Rights uh, Defender, the legislation contravenes rules of the European Court on Human Rights. So the law is probably illegal to begin with. Yikes. But despite uh, boasting the support of France's two different uh, major political parties, uh, the Union of a Popular Movement and the Socialist Party. Uh, the intelligence bill has come in from uh, some strong criticism in France and is beginning to raise eyebrows abroad. As is, other this people like, are like, is this like the Patriot Act on steroids kind of a thing? Uh, yeah, kind okay. of. Uh, well, yeah. So uh, many international NGOs have condemned the vague and general nature of the bill. So they really don't say what... They're very generic about it so that the law can easily be abused to do whatever they want. Uh, which is obviously the first problem with it. Yeah. You know, uh, designed to legalize certain surveillance practices, the bill would also broaden the powers of the security services, giving them the authority to ask private operators like, uh, you know, internet ISPs, backbone providers, places like DigitalOcean that rent servers, um, giving them the authority to ask the private operators to allow and report on the activity of internet users. Hmm. Uh, the debate over using terrorism as an excuse for internet surveillance is already raging in France, uh, especially since... Uh, Paris decided to block access to certain websites after the attacks right. uh, they had. the Charlie Hebdo attacks. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in January 7th. Um, and it's like, basically, this is their version of the Patriot Act. It's like, oh, something bad happened. We can use that justification to spy on everybody. Huh, right. that does sound like the Patriot Act, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so in the new bill, it goes even further. If adopted, it would allow investigators and government agents to intercept private emails and telephone conversations in the name of security uh, if they are directly linked to an investigation. Uh, however, agents would be allowed to use the new technologies wherever they deem necessary, including uh, microphones, tracking devices, and spy cameras, and they would be allowed to intercept conversations typed on a keyboard in real time, so key loggers and intercepting your actual internet traffic. Do not want. Yeah. Uh, all of these interceptions would be authorized by the prime minister without the prior approval of a judge and would be authorized after the fact by the new administrative authority, the National Commission for the Control of Intelligence Techniques. Yikes. So you can do whatever you want and we'll give you permission after. That's the opposite of how permission works. Yeah, that's, not, that's, that's asking for forgiveness. Yeah. So uh, seven big IT companies, including web hosting and technology companies like OVH, which is a huge uh, server provider, yeah. IDS Gandhi, which is a, another uh, hosting provider and a domain registrar, uh, and a bunch of other have uh, sent an open letter to the French prime minister, uh, and they say that they'll be pushed into de facto exile if the French government goes ahead with this real-time capture of data by intelligence agencies. Wow. Specifically, this would be the French intelligence agency, the French version of the NSA, being allowed to put back, uh, to walk into ISPs and say, we're putting a black box in to monitor stuff and you can't tell anybody about it and you right. can't do anything about and it. Like, and well, we have had that happen to yeah. an extent, you know, within the, like in the- Well, in, in particular, uh, some of the ISPs are like, people come to us and use us and host in France because we yeah. don't have a Patriot Act. Right, right. Yeah, and, uh, you know, this is, it's not just France that's going through this. Um, Today, we talked about on Tech Talk today that it just passed through the House. Uh, it's a bill that it's called PCNA, Protecting Cyber Networks, backed by House Intelligence Committee leaders, would give companies liability protections when sharing cyber threat data with government civilian agencies. That means user data. That means user data because they right. want to look at activity of users so and they want to be indemnified. Uh, yeah, so companies can't get in trouble for giving your data away to the government. And this is happening this right one, now in the U.S. Yeah, but in the French one, the company doesn't even have a choice in the matter. Right. Of course, that one, I'm sure it's not phrased exactly like that, but 
the companies will be strong-armed into giving over the data. Yeah, well, Kind of like uh, Yahoo. There's like, we're going to fine you $100,000 a day until you give us the data. Right, and so <laughs> Yahoo eventually had to comply. Exactly. Uh, and, and the Quest CEO who didn't comply ended up in jail. Exactly. So, yeah. Uh, but especially some of the large internet service providers like Gandhi and OVH and so on uh, have said that they will have to leave France if this law passes. They've literally threatened to move all of their operations, customers, tax revenue, all their equipment, their data centers, wow. and their thousands of high-tech jobs, you think which every mean country it? is after. Do you think they mean it? I think so. Basically, they'll lose 40-plus percent of their customers if they don't. Yeah. And, and you know, uh, it'd be really fun if they moved it all to their existing data center in Canada. <laughs> uh, as long as Canada doesn't pass a stupid law like this. Yeah. Um, so, yes, uh, a lot of French people up in arms about this one. Uh, so hopefully this sends a clear message and warning to U.S. and other countries who are considering or proposing similar legislation that literally the companies will have to pick up and move and take all their high-tech jobs <laughs> and all their tax revenue with them because they cannot operate under these circumstances. Uh, but also, you know, send a clearer message to countries whose intelligence services have run amok that you need to rein them in, otherwise this is going to have serious impact. Right. Right. And we've seen this kind of with our, some of the existing stuff uh, where, you know, uh, Cisco and stuff is like we're having to like dead drop our equipment and ship it to fake customers and stuff to stop the NSA from implanting viruses in our equipment before it gets delivered to our customers. And or like... Countries in Europe will refuse to buy our equipment now because it's probably full of NSA spyware. And if they buy from a European vendor, they won't have that problem. Right. I uh, I wonder, Alan, if uh, this will actually make it since it's hitting so much resistance. Do you think it has a chance of being derailed? The, the, uh, the politicians in France seem to really want it. But hopefully uh, we have made enough noise that we can stop it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Wow. Well, and to any uh, audience... So uh, the, the companies argued that being required by yeah. the new law to install black boxes on their networks will destroy a major segment of the economy. Yeah. And if passed, will force them to move our infrastructure investment employees uh, to some place where our customers will want to work with us, citing a figure of 30, 40, uh, 30 to 40% of OVH users uh, and Gandhi users are foreign users, and companies say that their customer comes to them because there is no Patriot Act in France. Uh, French's surveillance bill, the... Projet de Lolly I think that was about it. Yeah, I think you nailed yeah. it. <laughs> Allows the government law enforcement intelligence agency to immediately access live phone and cellular data from anyone suspected of being linked to terrorism. Uh, these phone records can be held up to five years. Mm -hmm. And then I have a bunch of uh, additional links that uh, cover more of it. And uh, yeah, you know, I, I tried to avoid most of the stuff that was in French. But do you ha you have French. servers in France? Yes, I do. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, do you think this could affect you in any way that would be bad? Well, if OVH has to pick up and move their data center, then yes, that will cause me some issues. Really? Yeah. Are you in there? Yeah. I, I'm in uh, their data center in Bay and their one in Strasbourg, which are both in France. <laughs> That's funny, Alan. That's funny. And I'm in their one in Canada. Uh, you mind if I uh, take a minute and tell you about our friends yes. at IX Systems? All right. Well, head over to ixsystems.com slash techsnap right now. ixsystems.com slash techsnap. That's where you want to go to support the TechSnap program and to land more to learn more about IX Systems, builders and creators of machines that really can answer any solution you might have and the mm -hmm. perfect machines for an open source solution powered by those incredible Intel Xeon processors. They have a really great pre-purchase con consultation process that really is worth your time. Like, Accurate seriously, you, you send them an email explaining what problem you're having or what, what you need the, the machine for. And they're like, well, uh, here's one build out that would do this. If you need more performance, then we have this version. 
or you know if you're on a budget we have this version or if you need to be able to expand it in the future then we can change it just this way uh you know yeah when i bought my last storage server i'm like yeah if we get the one that way i can add a a, a second rack that's only full of hard drives and i don't need a, another motherboard and cpu and ram and so on right i i like it because i honestly was a little bit of a noob when i was setting up my zfs storage array and yeah. i thought i knew what i needed because yeah, i've been building servers for uh, a minute 10 years i don't know no i actually turned out i really could use their help and they were very mm-hmm. good and very mm-hmm. clear and it worked out to save me some money yeah. so that's even better uh go over to ixsystems.com slash tech and then dig around but also something we don't mention too often about ix because we're always you know in business mode because yep. really they're all about solving problems for your enterprise or your small business, right? But uh, to be honest, they have a social side. They have a friendly yeah. side. Find them. Follow them. Facebook.com slash IX Systems or uh, their IX Systems on Google+. And the reason why I recommend this is uh, we're going to be at Linux Fest Northwest this weekend yep. with IX Systems. A bunch of them are going to be there. Yeah. And uh, traditionally, IX has posted some of the pictures from those events on their social media pages. And I would be willing to bet sharp-eyed viewers will catch a few pe- snapshots of Mr. Jude at Linux Fest Northwest this weekend. But they also have a bunch of other great posts on their social yeah, network. And they're at like every conference you can think yeah. of. Yeah, it's neat. It's neat to see another side of the company too. So uh, it, I follow them everywhere. Sometimes they're at multiple different conferences in the same weekend. Yes, yes, that is very true. They have teams of people. I like. I, they're really nice people. I dig them both on uh, Google Plus and uh, Facebook, and they're also on uh, Twitter, of course. Yep. Uh, but uh, Facebook.com slash IX Systems or plus IX Systems on you Google Plus. You can basically Plus. tell if you walk into a Linux conference and you see a bunch of blinking cards. IX is there. Yeah, the, that's a picture of them right there yeah. on the in there. Uh, yeah, and uh, they've they, they've always. Uh, see, if we go to photos, I bet you. If we look in here, look here's here's photos of uh, them at fest. In February though, there's a there's some uh, nice server porn up. Scroll up a little bit. Yeah, there. I know, I know. I was server just showing. Porn. Yeah, there. Yeah, they, so there are other reasons to go to their social media <laughs> yeah. pages as well. <laughs> that's a good one. Oh man, a terabyte of memory running Arch Linux. Yes, please. Yes, please. Look at that thing. That's a that beast. That was uh, 60 cores. No, they built a similar one with 120 cores and two terabytes of RAM. <laughs> so they, they can go all the way from, yeah. you know, a, a little low-end Atom board with like four gigs of RAM for, uh, you know, a little ha- short-depth thing, quiet s- system to put in your house. Or, uh, you know, uh, I have a customer that bought a box from IX. Uh, uh, and they was looking for a place to co-locate it, and then I actually got referred through IX for them. <laughs> and uh, he's got it set up with a bunch of video cards and is doing some kind of scientific research. Ooh, or Bitcoin mining, one of the two. Not Bitcoin. <laughs> it's, it's either password cracking or scientific oh, research. Okay, yeah, all right, all right. Uh, hey, before we run into the feedback segment, this would be a great spot uh, halfway into the show to download a HD version of BSD Now, Business mm-hmm. As Usual, Episode 86 of the BSD Now program. Yes, and we had an awesome is- interview with an OpenBSD developer. Uh, who uses OpenD, uh, OpenBSD in his business and uh, supports a bunch of very large multinational corporations that are in sometimes even like 20 or 50, 100 countries and uh, needed, uh, and they're even using OpenBSD for their workstation desktops uh, and very fancy stuff. And he's also the developer that ported Lumina, the PCBSD's new desktop manager, to uh, OpenBSD. Um, and uh, you're in studio for this episode. Yes, I was in studio for that episode. Episode 86. Uh, and, uh, oh, we also have a link in there to a tutorial on how to reformat a FreeBSD DigitalOcean to make it run OpenBSD. I saw that. That's crazy. It's uh, the crazy stuff you can do only because OpenB- or, uh, DigitalOcean gives you that console you can do. Yeah. Uh, for when the se- yeah. So you can basically install the installer image of OpenBSD into the swap space in FreeBSD, reboot off of it, and then use the console to install OpenBSD over top. 
Wow, that's that's great. That's great. I've only ever done that to a Linux machine to uh, to make it run FreeBSD. I actually but saw. It works I did see a guy. I think moving like one of the Debian boxes, or one, or I guess an Ubuntu box to Arch. And I don't know how you. I just looked there and said, "Oh, really? That sounds like a mess." Yeah. I do like that you do it through the swap, though. That's particularly yeah. cool. <laughs> well, it's a, it's a space you can overwrite while yeah. you're yeah. You know, and any other time you're like trying to to change your pants while running, or or right. like you're standing on your arm and trying to do something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, all right, so there you go, BSD episode 86, a good grab, mm-hmm. and uh, I think you'll enjoy that. But, Alan, with the news all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap Feedback. Thanks for sending your emails to techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or popping that contact link at the top of the Jupiter Broadcasting website, or maybe even better, start a thread in our subreddit over at techsnap.reddit.com. Our first email comes in from Rapper, and he has some questions about hardening SSH okay. on your server. He says, hi, Alan and Chris. My server heart, my server having gotten hacked <laughs> and having to reset it all up has sharpened my mind on server security. I've well, been- I'm going to just stop there for a sec. Uh, how did it get hacked? And I'm most likely not through SSH. And if it was through SSH, then you had a password that was that easily guessable. And Probably. That's kind of shame on you. Yeah. I would but love the details. I, I'm guessing that, more likely it was uh, some web application, old version of MySQL or, or uh, uh, WordPress know, or something like that. Guys, if you want to give us the details on that kind of stuff, we'd love it. <laughs> yeah. Um, if you don't want us to share them, you can indicate oh. that this part is private just yeah. so we understand the context so we can answer the question better. Oh, that would... Okay. All right. That's a very but good point. We, we'd, we'd prefer it if we could share it because yeah. it's a good story. So, so now he's uh, thinking about security yep. and he says, I was looking into the idea whether you could have a false... SSH port, and he found out about NOCD, and he links us to a digital ocean tutorial on NOCD. I'm still looking into this, and it might be a bit much for my case, but I don't think I remember Alan or yourself mentioning this type of thing, i.e. SSH hardening tricks in general. My actual idea was trying to see if you set up a double SSH. Uh, I wanted to log in and then make it ask me to log in again as sort of a form of a two-part authentication. Perhaps maybe I would port forward initially? Or I'm sorry, I said internally. Private right. keys are a good idea, but they are difficult to understand. And I see other security issues. Securing them on your home PC is hard to do. Well, uh, uh, normally with an SSH key, it's actually encrypted with a password. So when you go to log in, instead of you typing a password that gets sent to the remote server, you type a password that decrypts the private key that is then used to connect to the remote server. So yeah. you still you don't you have the the security of the private key requires a password on your local machine. I'm getting a little nervous when I read Rapper's email, to be honest with you. I, I feel like maybe Rapper's in over his head a little bit. A little bit. And um, pri- the SSH keys are not that complicated. And yeah, they're that's definitely what, more secure than passwords. So don't be scared away by the complication. Yeah. They're really not that complicated. And there are some tools out there to make them easier to use. Yep. Um, um, the the um, uh, YubiKey that Noah has is very Yes, nice. that's a great one. I'm, I'm actually looking at buying one of those. What do you think about his question regarding port knocking? Okay, so port knocking, the way this works is you uh, make a connection to a random port and then another connection to a different random port. And, and depending on like, the pattern you use. Yeah, so if you connect to those two quickly enough yeah. in the right order, yeah. uh, then your IP is added to right. the firewall saying, allow this guy to connect to the regular SSH right. port. I mean, on a real basic and, level, it's called uh, port knocking because the software on the machine is waiting for you to... Yeah, the do, do the secret order. knock yeah. on, on the door. Yeah. And then that only IPs that have done that are allowed into the firewall for X minutes or whatever. Right. And uh, so, yes, that allows you to basically make it look like SSH isn't running uh, and, and not get picked up by port scans and stuff. I don't know that it's that useful. 
Uh, it seems, seems like, like if something would be hard to do from your phone and when you want to SSH from your phone, it's usually an emergency type situation and you really wish you wasted all this crap in the right. way. It seems like if you always knew you were connecting from a client that supported port knocking in a way that would well, match. Well, you can also say my house is always whitelisted, so I only have to port sure. knock when I'm on the road. But I was, yeah, I, I mean, hmm. I, yeah. yeah. Um, I've never found port knocking to be totally practical. Yeah. And basically your SSH can be secured by not having the common ways that people get in yeah. be a problem. And then yeah. something like fail to ban or deny host that will block people after too many failed attempts. Requiring that a key works. if you can do it. Uh, he mentioned about a fake SSH. You could do something like that. Uh, basically a, a honeypot running a port 22 looking for people that connect to it. Uh, if if all your real users know that, hey, yeah. we actually run SSH on port like 9444 or something like that. Yeah, I know, but you know what he's going to get? Anybody who connects to 22, you can block them. The problem is you're going to accidentally do that yourself one time yeah. and block yourself. Well, you know, what he's gonna, you know what he's going to get if he does that? He's going to get tons of failed login attempts. Well, that's it, what he'll get. And because well, there's yes. scripts that are just going to hit First your all, IP and try to log in. And you're going to get all obsessed about that. And it's just totally normal. Yeah. Well, it's just, well uh, with the fake SSH on port 22, you can just auto-block anybody who ever connects to it, right? And oh, okay. Without logging it. I even. do kind of like that. That uh, sounds mischievous. It's, it's, it's a honeypot, right? You're, it's like anybody that runs yeah. into this is obviously not. Until you go they're, block they're yourself. They're scanning. Yeah, until you block yourself, which is the problem. Uh, hiding SSH on a high port number doesn't really work. The bots actually scan every port number now because that's so common. Um, and, you know. People that hide their SSH on a high port number are the ones that usually don't bother with making it keys only or uh, having really strong passwords and stuff, right? They're like, oh, I hit it. Nobody's going to know. It doesn't matter. Uh, you know, every machine's getting this all the time. Right. Uh, a little bit less now that Cisco pulled the plug on that uh, SSH freakers, but I imagine those guys will be back in a couple of days anyway. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> port knocking seems okay, but it doesn't seem that good. Uh, for the, the double SSH thing, rather than port forwarding, uh, you should look at the trial we did on BSD Now, uh, where you can do SSH chaining. So, uh, for example, mm. to get to uh, to SSH from somewhere into my house, uh, to get to my file server, you can't actually connect to my file server directly from the internet because security. <laughs> uh, you have to go through what's called a bastion host. So you SSH into my router uh, in a container thing, and if once you're in there, you can then SSH from there into the the file server. So uh, you can actually, using the script and, and the config examples we set up on BSD now. I'll put uh, a link to this in the show notes. Yep. You can actually um, make an alias. So you can just say SSH file server, and it'll actually do the two steps for you. It'll SSH into the router, and then on the router, execute the command to SSH into this is the file cool, server Alan. and pass it through. Oh. And you can set up multiple levels of this. Because uh, I know, uh, you know, with my uh, a friend of, of co-developer at FreeBSD, uh, work for the company that makes uh, the software that processes checks for like every bank in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Well, he had to go through a couple layers of this to log into machines sure. that work from sure. uh, on the road and stuff. Okay. So like he would have to, uh, or you know, it, even uh, the, the the control system at Scale Engine, I actually have to SSH into a trusted machine at my house and then SSH into it. So I I've have done to go that through. too. Yeah, I've done so that as to well. To get to it from on the road right here, I have to go to my router, yeah. to my desktop, and, and then to the server. That feels to me like a pretty comfortable compromise. Yep. Uh, and something I'm, I can, I grok, something that's e easily doable, and something the technology makes pretty possible. So uh, I just dropped in the show notes right by uh, this question, uh, the link to the, uh, to the article uh, yep. over on BSN. And you can also TV. use it to configure a jump host where you went. Every SSH connection you make to always go through one server before it goes out. Oh, okay. Which you can use to hide where you're coming from, or Clever. you know, if you're on hotel Wi-Fi or something, you want to make sure. And it really goes kind out. of standardize that process. Yep. That's that's nice. 
Yeah. Uh, all right. Greg writes in with our next question. Uh, he says, in your last show, you were a little bit sad and surprised that there were no ZFS questions. So here's what boggles my mind. You ready for this one, Alan? Mm-hmm. In between of saving a large file, let's say it's several hundred megabytes, a snapshot occurs, then we get one part of the file in one snapshot, and another part of the file hasn't been yet snapshotted. Mm-hmm. Later, on a, I, later on, I change the file, save it, and close. The whole file at this point has been changed. What will I get in the next snapshot? Would ZFS know that one part of the file is in the past snapshot and that there is no other part of the file because that file has has not been changed or has been changed? Is it possible to restore the previous version of a file in this instance? Thanks, and keep up the big show. Greg. Right. So ZFS snapshots happen at the block level, although blocks in ZFS can be up to 128K. Actually, with a new uh, version that just came out, they can be up to a megabyte or... Is that standard, though? Like, like if yeah, you so the, the default in ZFS is up to 128 kilobytes, although smaller automatically if your file isn't that big. Oh, okay. And also the way ZFS works, in, unless you're writing a file, what's called uh, synchronously, where like a database does that. Yeah. Uh, and so when you write a file synchronously, what you're basically saying is uh, when you call the write command uh, in, in the application in your machine, uh, that will sit there and wait until the disk already, the entire file is completely written on the hard drive, and then it will finish in return. So what you're saying is ZFS is smart enough to know that file is currently well, in this progress. Well, is, this is something uh, that's built into every application that existed long before ZFS. It was saying, when I'm writing this file, and it's very important that I don't do the next thing in the program until that file is all the way And this out. happens like at the kernel level? or Yeah. Okay. okay. So it's basically, uh, the database says, I'm writing out this change. Don't let the next thing in the database happen until that's done. That's called a synchronous write. Okay. Or you have an asynchronous write where you're like, here's a bunch of data I need it written down. I call write, and then it returns immediately, and I can go on and keep doing more work and then do some more writes. And, and with those, ZFS will just flushes them out in big chunks every five seconds so that you're, instead of being your hard drive busy all the time with little tiny writes, it bashes off in one big block and then slaps them down on the disk uh, really quickly. So Sequentially, he, so it makes it faster. Does he need to even worry about this? It depends. So it depends what the application is. If the application is very sensitive to the file being modif- uh, you know, being in a half-consistent state yeah, or something, yeah, yeah. then it will probably be synchronous. and Like a binary log or something like that? Yeah, that- uh, or a database like in, in yeah. a MySQL database. Yeah. Then um, MySQL will call sync every time it's finished uh, one transaction or one chunk of change. Yeah. And when you do a snapshot, it waits till all the sync things are finished syncing and okay. then does the snapshot. Okay. So you will get the consistent version of the file. If it's asynchronous... Uh, the when you call the snapshot command, it stops everything that's been read up to that point. Lets yeah. it finish, then does the snapshot okay. and then returns. Okay. Uh, so yes, if you're if you have a log file that you're updating once a second and you take a snapshot, you'll have up to the second where you took the snapshot, and everything after won't be in the snapshot. When you take a new snapshot, it'll be only the blocks that were used uh, for the changes. Hmm. So it, it doesn't have to store the file twice. But if you change an earlier block, something you don't know when you do in a log file, but if yeah. you change one earlier block, it could be in a database. then only that one block will actually be written again that's here. And you like, actually keep both versions because okay. that's how the snapshot works. Okay. If you access it via the snapshot, you get the older version of the file, how it existed the exact second the snapshot was yeah. taken. Yeah. So that's how snapshot works. You get the file exactly how it looked the second the snapshot was taken. Right. So uh, in your case where you're writing and taking snapshots, sometimes it's not possible to get the exact version that existed at a certain time. If you mm. want that version of exactly how it existed at this exact second, you need to take a snapshot at that second. That makes sense. Okay. Greg. Yeah. I hope that helps. Uh, and, you know, it's it's funny because it's probably one of those problems that in practice doesn't hit you as often as you'd think. Yeah. 
but it is sort of worth thinking about because depending right. on well, your in general, uh, the worst case of the snapshot is it would be exactly the same if the power had gone out at that second. Yeah, that's a good way. Yeah, that's and, true. And that and could happen to all of us. Yeah. <laughs> so. the, the biggest difference is that uh, in a regular file system, if you're you, if you have like a hundred megabyte file and you overwrite the whole thing because you made some change completely different or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and you're halfway through writing it and the power goes out. When you reboot on you know UFS or EXT or or whatever file system you have, a, a, a regular type file system, you will have that half the new file and half the old file and it's all gibberish, right? <laughs> yes. Uh, with ZFS. Because the first half of the file that it did overwrite, it, it wrote the whole new version of the file is being written to a different f- spot on the disk, not overwriting. And so uh, when it says, oh, this one never finished writing, so I'm going to throw that away. And when you reboot, you get how that file was like two seconds before the power outage when the file was perfect. Right. And Which a good big difference. In most cases is perfect. Exactly yeah. what you it's, want. It's, it, yeah. It's, it, if your choice is how the file looked two seconds ago or gibberish, yeah. which version do you want? <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, okay. So our last email came in uh, from Aaron. Now, if now you're like, hey, hold on, guys, I sent you an email. Don't worry. We're gonna do another episode in just a few minutes, and we've got a whole other batch of emails. So, uh, so we have, and there are some important ones in there, and yep. uh, we we have them. Uh, but Aaron writes in, uh, and uh, I just wanted to put this in here because you keep forgetting to mention this in the show. Uh, well, I have something bigger I forgot to mention. All right. I'm gonna, uh, the, the, After the, this? The last question reminded I got me of it, and yes, yes it's so related. So Aaron writes in, and he found, he spotted, I love this. He's going, he's just browsing on the internet, and he finds Alan on the yep. internet in a video at the 27-minute mark. He says, of course, go figure, the topic is ZFS. Uh, and it is the uh, yes, open I, I think ZFS. I, I, we kind of forgot to promote this on yeah. this show. We, we did it on BSD now. Well, we, we kind of mentioned one. it was coming, but then right. So here, yeah. he look at so, this. Uh, he, he linked it. I think he covered most of it. It was just here's uh, the Alan cameo. Yeah. Wondering, you know, is there anything special we can do in ZFS to be uh, more compatible with SMR? Like in most cases, ZFS doesn't overwrite anything in place. Uh, so really, the only uh, the only parts of ZFS that get overwritten in place are the labels for the the ring for the the Uber block, right? I like that you set up the uh, Tetris lamp for this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's nice, dude. And so, you rock uh, yeah. the original. This not, is, not um, the, is that the OG headset or is that yes, a new Yes, that's headset? the original one. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's good. Uh, so this was um, ZFS office hours, which is something that's supposed to happen once a quarter, which yeah. basically only happens once a year. Mm. But uh, it's an hour-long session where uh, with the Google Hangout and the chat room and emails, uh, people can ask questions of ZFS experts. Like if you see there, you have Matt Ahrens, yeah. uh, Justin Gibbs, George Wilson, and uh, this guy that who's talking is works at a comp- uh, Nexenta, I think. Uh, all, basically, the people that write the code for ZFS, and they definitely know how to answer your questions. So if you have a question, they'd be maybe the Honestly, expert, the, the, the original, yes. Uh, the original <laughs> idea of this was more for developers that wanted to work on ZFS to ask questions. Yeah. But... I sometimes like to throw user questions in there because there's stuff I want to know. <laughs> Good for you, Alan. I love the chat. Oh, that looks like Justin Gibbs because that is Justin Gibbs. Yeah. He's one of the free <laughs> BSD guys that does a lot of work on ZFS. Yeah. So uh, uh, we'll link the whole video if you want to yes, watch it. It's about uh, 20. Basically, it's, it's an, an hour, hour long. It's an hour uh, long. It's yeah. an hour long session of people asking questions about ZFS and getting answers from experts. Uh, somebody else's question was earlier where we asked Justin. I want to run ZFS inside virtualization. What's the best way to do that? Oh. That's a very popular question. That is a very popular question. And then uh, the question that we were highlighting just there was me asking about those new shingled magnetic recording drives. Yeah. And basically nobody actually knows exactly how they're going to interact with ZFS. But it's Seagate says don't use them in RAID. So you're pretty sure that ZFS is not going to work very well on them. (laughs) But uh, 
as we start seeing the host managed ones where the host or the host aware SMR where the host actually knows what's happening, yes, yes. we could uh, definitely see some interesting stuff happening there. Uh, and the thing I forgot to mention that I wanted to mention mm-hmm. is that the first of the two books about ZFS yeah. Uh, is the draft copy is now available for pre-order, which means you Where pay uh, uh, ZFSbook.com. ZFSbook.com. Yeah. All right. That's a so, great title. Uh, the book, is when it comes out in May-ish, is going to be $9.99. For 10% off, you can now get a uh, pre-order, but as part of the pre-order, you get the draft copy. So this is exactly what it looks like so far. We have a bunch of corrections to make, and it's undergoing tech review from people that know a lot about ZFS who are going to tell us where we wrote something that was wrong or whatever. But you're but literally this is, you're, this is so like who's this Arthur? This uh, this Alan Jude guy? I'm not. Yeah. Familiar. So uh, I co-wrote this myself. Uh, it's myself and Michael W. Lucas, who's a famous author of BSD-related books like uh, uh, Networking for Sysadmins, uh, Absolute FreeBSD, Absolute OpenBSD, uh, SSH Mastery, Sudo Mastery. Uh, DNS Tech Mastery, and this is uh, the first one is ZFS Mastery or ZFS Essentials. You realize, and the next book will be Advanced ZFS. You realize now, you you now get to say, I've literally written the book on ZFS. Yeah, <laughs> originally it was just the handbook. Now it's an actual book, uh, which is available as a DRM-free ebook if you pre-order it, or it'll be an ebook and a uh, wow. physical book in May or June That's when the great. publishing is finished. So again, it's called FreeBSD Mastery ZFS. Yes. And, uh, uh, and so you can pre-order right now and get a draft copy of it, and the draft will continuously be updated until you get the final version when the book is released. And pre-order at zfsbook.com. Yes, and you get 10% off. <laughs> <laughs> That's great, Alan. That yes. is really... And how and, and how long did it take you to, to work? Uh, quite a bit of work went into that. We, I think we started in January. Well, we started planning long ago, but we actually started writing in January. Which you do it again? Uh, yeah, there's a whole second book we haven't started yet. <laughs> oh, jeez. Okay. All right. we, we have some stuff where it was in the first book and it got bumped because mm-hmm. the first book was already too big. Yeah. When we started, we thought we were going to write one book. And then <laughs> then we're like, all right, we'll split them. And I was like, oh, is there really going to be enough in the first book? Is right. It, and right. it's like, we're going to fall short of the target. And then the target was like 30, 35,000. We hit like 47,000 words. Weird. Like, That's weird, Alan. That's weird, huh? Alan talks too much. <laughs> <laughs> That's strange. I wouldn't have thought that would happen. Hmm. As he looks at his show notes of multi-pages here. Yeah. Uh, well, there's something that we wanted to share with you guys for uh, a couple of weeks, but we wanted to wait till we were recording a double episode. Yeah, and Alan, did you, how did you find these? Uh, I, randomly. Uh, somebody retweeted one of them, and I found the whole series, and I just thought these were awesome. All right. So uh, do you want to break down this uh, first one for us here? We have. Uh, yeah, sure. This is a, a population study of companies identifying uh, the types of the next generation. So yeah. if you look at um, what... People would have called it in 2011 versus what people would call it now and looking at the different things. So, uh, you know, a structure in an organization would have been called a department. Yeah. And now it's called a service or a cell, right? So uh-huh. uh, companies don't have departments anymore. They have services that are provided to yeah. them by various things. Or, you know, if a company had uh, culture, that would have been called inertia before. And it's like we keep doing it this way because that's how we've always done it. Now we call that a fluid thing or something hmm. weird like that. Corporate focus. Yeah, their strategy of corporate focus, uh, before it would have been profit, now it's distribu- or disruption. disruption. You, instead of making money, you want to ruin somebody else's business. <laughs> right. Or invent a new business model by destroying yeah. the old one. Yeah, Uber, for example, is yeah. a classic one. Yeah, they're trying to disrupt the market by making the old business models not work and their business model be the only one that still works. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, you know, if, if you had big data, you used to use big data, now you're driven by big data and things like that. Or if you had... Uh, 
resiliency. You right, you had n plus one, right? So even if our yes. all, one of our uh, yeah. generators fails, we yeah. still have a second generator. Yeah. We're fine. Yeah. Now you're designed to fail. Designed for failure. Yeah. So it's like we can we, we fail. We're all ready the time. for failure. We've yeah. designed it in. Well, it's, it's like Netflix has a system they call the right. Chaos Monkey, right? And they have a whole seeming army of different things where they purposely go and break their stuff on in live production to make sure that it's going to right. adapt. Or like with Google it. with their uh, motherboards on the shelf, designed, yep. you know, built with failure in, in mind. Yeah, each one has its own battery because a UPS can fail. And this yeah. way, if a UPS fails, it only fails on the one machine. Yeah. Or, um, you know, failure testing. It used to be called disaster recovery, right? <laughs> right. When we make sure I that- it still if, was. <laughs> yeah. So we have disaster recovery. You know, if, if, if a hard drive fails or a machine fails, we can- uh, make sure we can restore it from backup. Now it's called Chaos Engines, like uh, mm. the Chaos Monkey yeah. uh, from Netflix, right. Right. where we purposely break stuff all the time to make sure that our systems are always right. recovering properly. It's a slightly different approach, but it's basically the same Or thing. if you need more capacity, you used to scale up, now you scale, scale out. Scale out, yeah. And so on. Yeah, all right. Boy, that is true. Boy, it makes you feel a little, does it make you feel like an old man when you see that? Bit, yes. A little bit, yeah. All right, well, here's another one. Uh, here is an examination of strategic play versus action. Concluding that action, whilst important, was not the key. Now, what's this, Alan? Uh, it's a graphic. <laughs> oh, is that all you got for me? <laughs> Basically, it's a chart showing where different things end up, right? Yeah. If you have believers, they they always think that you know they're they're down in this quadrant with yeah most yeah. of this and most of this, whereas yeah. a player is up here like this, and thinkers are on the opposite side. All right, we'll leave this to the yeah. imagination. Wait, for the basically, if you're a thinker, you're you're looking at uh, how you would do it and so on. And believer, you're just buying whatever they're selling, right? Open kind of. by default, or believers. Yeah. Or, or you have chancers, people that, uh, I don't care what's going to happen. I'm just going to keep hoping nothing bad ever happens. <laughs> right? Yeah. All right. Here is another, an examination of predictability, demonstrating that there was many knowledgeable things which often failed to exploit. Uh, yeah. So it's like uh, looking at what uh, should what's going to happen versus when it's going to happen. Right? So people thought, oh, this is definitely going to happen, and it never ends up happening. Like VR. Or, yeah. Or people think that, you know, Something, yeah, they think VR is going to happen yeah. and it never does. Yeah. Or they think that's not going to happen for 20 years and then it happens two years later. Right. Or the vice versa. Like, so like, I, like if you would have asked me before smartphones really took off, I would have said ubiquitous internet would have taken 20 years and VR would have taken a couple of years. Yeah. And now we have ubiquitous internet and I don't have VR. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't understand. And stuff like that. Yeah. Well, we have a whole series. Do you want to yeah. blast through a couple this, more? Uh, these ones are just uh, looking at... Uh, this one's uh, using uh, weak signals to identify when war or industrialization has happened and start in different fields. So looking at, uh, you know, we, uh, infrastructure as a service and platform as a service. And and by war, they don't mean actual war. They mean like... Uh, all the companies are competing with each other yeah. versus there's only one company in the in right. area yeah. and so on. And, you know, like Internet of Things, we're not we're looking like, what, that 2030 for Internet of Things to really be in full... Geez, really? Wow. Sensor as a service, uh, 2030. Wow, so they're going way out here. Social change, 2025 to 2030. Wow, that's coming soon. (laughs) Hello, everybody. 3D printing is on the nearish horizon. Yeah, of course. Well, not really. Sorry, 20, what's that? 2025 to 2030 before 3D printing is, you know, something we use every day. isn't too far out, but yeah. Not really, no. Hmm. That's a good one. All right. And then we have another one here for you. Uh, a neat profile, uh, which makes uh, his this list here, yeah. the pit of financial doom uh, versus Nirvana. <laughs> yeah. And looking at, you know, uh, pioneers who are the first person to get there, settlers who are actually building stuff once they get there, and then your town planners, town planners that are, yeah. you know, looking at how can we fix the uh, mess made by the settlers. Right. Right. Yeah, and then we've got uh, everything you need to know about knowledge and expertise. Yeah, this is one we've talked about before. Uh, I think you have it highlighted as well. Yeah, I I yeah there you go. Yeah. Uh, so, it's, you know, as you start learning things, you think you know <laughs> lots, 
uh, and then eventually you realize you didn't know anything. I was just talking about this with somebody recently from the medical field, yeah. and she was saying that it's the same exact thing in the medical field like we experience yeah. here in the technical field. The people who think they're complete experts are probably the people that are a little scary from a medical practice, and then the people who uh, realize how much they actually know versus how much they'd like to know are the people that are probably more closer to experts. Yeah. Uh, so we've covered this uh, particular one before on TechSnap, and then I found out there was an entire series of them. Yeah. They brought the rest back. I love that one. All right. And then the enterprise IT adoption cycle. <laughs> yeah. So it's like some new technology comes out, and you're looking at, you know, we're just, oh, that's silly. We're just going to ignore The first three it, phases, ignore, ignore, ignore. Second phase, no. the third phase, no, no. And then the fourth phase, I said, no, damn it. That's when the rest of the world's at peak adoption. Yeah. <laughs> and then it's like, oh, no. Uh, everybody else has this and we don't. And, and then, oh, uh, fuck, everybody else has phase, this and we and don't. And then IT jumps way up. Yeah, then the enterprise IT finally catches up to the that curve. That is so true. Yes. Yeah, it's like IT's like, all right, finally, and they give in, and then and yeah. the dam breaks. Uh, okay, uh, the entire history of cloud in one handy two-by-two. Two. Yeah. Uh, so this is the looking at it, and you know, our cloud will dominate because we've uh, got the greatest marketing team or whatever, or our cloud will dominate because everyone used or... Uh, Buys their technology, right? Or have uh, what's the other one say there? Uh, Please ignore what everyone else is saying. No one cares about cloud. Yeah, that was me for a long time. Yeah, <laughs> and then why is everyone making this this so easy for us? Yeah, so Amazon's down in the corner. Why is everybody making this so easy yeah. for us? Yeah, that's Amazon, and then uh, yeah, and yeah. then you have the self doubting Thomas is the uh, please ignore what everyone is saying. Yeah. All right, and then we have just a, we have a couple more. Yeah. Uh, build or use everything you need to know about cloud in another handy graphic. You have the public yeah. cloud here. Yeah, so if you're public cloud, you're standing on a horse rather than riding One it normally. One horse, a single yes. horse. But you're, but you're standing on it rather than riding it correctly. Right. Uh, if you use hybrid cloud, which is uh, using two different public clouds, then you're riding while standing one foot on each of two different horses right. that are different colors. Right. Uh, but if you try to use a hybrid cloud, which is part public and part private, so you have your own cloud plus using the public cloud, then it's uh, trying to ride two horses while one of them is, is actually a Or dead, dying. It's a dead donkey rather yeah. than a horse. Yeah. And, <laughs> and then if you it's got private, private only, you're literally trying to ride a dead donkey. <laughs> that makes me sad, Alan. Yeah. That makes me really sad. The entire history of product development in one handy table. Yeah. So you have, you know, uh, the first idea comes up and then we keep adding features. And then, uh, you know, we should, we should have launched, but we keep adding more features. Right. And then we finally get to what we uh, promised to launch, and then we keep adding more features, and then we finally ship it, and by then it's uh, crap. And I like that it's in the oh, not again category. Yep. Yeah, very true. It's, and then uh, I, it's too complex, and it's full of bugs, and it's just horrible. If we our, just launched it, we'd be done already. Our last one, the future history of technology with some helpful hints. Yikes. Now, what the hell is this one, Alan? Uh, it's kind of just showing how... Uh, a product goes through this life cycle of right. the previous chart we had. Yeah, this is the warts. This is like a yeah. zoom so in on the If you read them in order, uh, or just a couple of them, maybe. <clears throat> yeah. So number one, wor uh, work starts on XYZ, a wondrous new development with lots of potential. A paper is released on XYZ discussing its benefits. And then number three, did you hear a conference on XYZ is happening? So that's like where Docker was at, like exactly. last year. XYZ gets a meme. Docker definitely did that. 67% of CIOs consider XYZ critical to the future. That's that's what you're getting further in now. Docker is really accelerated here. Uh, Gardner says XYZ has reached the plateau of productivity. And then number phase 11, our XYZ product company is worth billions. That's where Docker's at right now. Yep. 
And then uh, number 12, industrialized versions of XYZ appear. They appear to get a new meme. Gardner says the XYZ meme is the peak of inflated expectations. Yeah. And then 13, those industrialized XYZ services are only for test and dev. You'll need to product for enterprise. That's exactly where uh, a Docker is. They're like, don't yep. use this for security. It's horrible. Yeah, yeah, very much so. And then 14, what we need are standards for those more industrialized forms of XYZ. Our product should be the standard. That's yeah. exactly so, what they're so, trying to do right yeah. now. So we have like LXC, Docker, yeah. Zones, Jails. Yeah. Those industrialized services represent less than 3% of the market. That's Now you're in full war uh, mode right now. Yeah. And then uh, number 16, uh, our XYZ product is more secure. It is the future. That's Rocket. <laughs> uh, please buy our product. That's number 17. That'll be Docker soon. XYZ, no, no. We don't do that. Can I interest you? This is the last phase. Can I interest you in our new ABC thing? We think it's like magic, and one day it'll be worth billions. Yeah. So by the time Docker actually gets to the point where we deliver something, we'll be like, no, Docker's stupid, and onto some new thing. Yep. Oh, humans, when will you ever yep. figure it out? Now, we'd love to get your emails. Go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com, click that contact link, and choose TechSnap from the dropdown, or go to techsnap.reddit.com or email us directly. TechSnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com. But with the feedback all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap Roundup. Welcome to the Tech Snap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. Now, the roundup of stories that just didn't quite fit at the top of the show, but we still want to give you some links to follow up on your own after the show. And a lot of these links were powered by our ultra amazing, incredible, spectacular, insanely great subreddit over at techsnap.reddit.com, where some of the best sysadmins in the universe, on Reddit at least, hang out. Uh, The the funny thing is there was more subreddit in this week than most weeks because I actually went to the subreddit because (gasps) Key5 was like, I posted something in the subreddit. (laughs) And then while I was there. While I was oh, there, what? I found there was a bunch of really good stuff in there. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah, it's because there's really smart people in our community. Yes. Yeah, that's that's what it is. Uh, all right, so and like this story came from the subreddit. Yes. Uh, cash register. Check this out. This point of sales device. It used the same password since 1990, uh, and the password was a one six six eight one six, which is a, I'm going to use that now as my default password. Yep. Uh, so uh, yeah. Uh, hackers, once they figured that out, obviously, were able to just have at it because that point-of-sale vendor used that same thing since the 90s. deploying that thing for 25 years, so they're everywhere. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Not too surprising. I bet they're not the only ones either. And, you know, more importantly, I'm guessing the problem is that most places didn't ever change the password (laughs) once it got installed, right? (laughs) So, yes, it would be better if they had, you know, used a unique password for each model and had it on a sticker on the bottom of the thing or something, Mm -hmm. uh, which definitely seems like a better approach than just having a default password. Uh, I, I did definitely liked it when uh, when you know uh, the modems and routers and stuff you started getting from ISPs had a password on a sticker instead of all of them having like admin with the password being password or something. Yeah, when I first got horrific. Comcast, my router password was high speed, and it was everybody's router password. Yeah, whereas instead having it something unique on a yeah. sticker for each one, so much better. Yeah. Now uh, we're over at uh, NorseCorp.com. Yes. No, not to watch their live cyber attack map. Mm-hmm. Although you can find it there as well. Yeah, the security community eating its own, yeah. uh, which is just really funny. So th- it's a little story. I'm going to try to tell it as quickly oh, okay. as I can. So the CEO of Major Corp <laughs> asked the CISO, which is the chief information security officer, so the, the security officer, uh, if the new exploit discovered in the wild called Shazam 
<laughs> which doesn't exist, uh, could affect their production systems. He said he didn't, uh, the CS, CISO says, I don't think so, but uh, just to be sure, he'll analyze all the systems and check for the vulnerability. Okay. So his staff is told to drop everything and <laughs> learn all that they can about the new exploit and analyze <laughs> all the systems, make sure they're not vulnerable. They go through the logs, they scan using some open source tools. They watch TechSnap. Yeah, they buy the Shazam plugin from their vendor for their antivirus scanner. The Shazam plugin? Yeah. Well, Shazam <laughs> is the name of the new exploit. Right? Oh, okay. Uh, and they find nothing. So oh. a day later, the CEO comes in and tells uh, him that the news says that Shazam is likely to affect their systems. Uh, so the CIS, the security officer, goes back to his staff and has them analyze everything all over again just to make sure. And again, they say nothing to find. So now the CEO calls again and he says he's seeing now in the news that his company specifically certainly has some kind of cybersecurity problem. Uh, so now the security officer panics and brings in a whole incident response team from a major security consultancy to go through each and every system with great care and make sure there's nothing wrong. Right. But after hundreds of man hours spent doing the same things that they've done themselves, mm -hmm. they find nothing. Of course. Uh, so he contacts the CEO and tells him the good news. But the CEO says, hey, just got a call from a journalist looking to confirm that we've actually been hacked. Uh, so the security officer starts to freak out. Oh, of course. Right? He tells the security guys to prepare for a full security upgrade. He pushes uh, this, the CIO uh, to authorize an emergency budget to buy more firewalls and secondary intrusion detection systems. <laughs> uh, the CEO pushes the budget uh, to the board who approves the budget in record time. Uh, yeah. The almost immediate and... Uh, Almost immediately, equipment starts arriving, and they start installing it, and they're working day and night to get all the stuff installed. Then the CEO calls the security officer on his phone, uh, cell phone, which is never a good sign, right. and tells the security officer that the New York Times just published that their company allegedly is being hacked Sony-style. Oh, jeez, Sony-style. Yep. Uh, they point to the newly discovered exploits as a likely cause. They point to blogs discussing the horrors of the new exploit <laughs> could cause, and that means that the rest of the smaller companies out there just can't defend themselves uh, without the you know the same financial alacrity that this company did. Yeah. Uh, the CEO tells the security officer it's time to bring in the FBI. <laughs> uh, so he needs him uh, to come explain himself and the situation to the board that night. This, the security officer feels sick to his stomach. He goes through the weeks of reports, findings, oh, and security upgrades, yeah. hundreds of thousands spent, and nothing. There's yeah. nothing to indicate a hack or even a problem from this exploit. Uh, so wondering if he's misunderstanding Shazam and how uh, it could have caused this, he decides to reach out to the security community. He makes a new Twitter account so that people won't know who he is and that he's from this company. Mm -hmm. uh, so he jumps into the trending Major Corp fail stream and tweets, <laughs> how bad is the Major Corp hack anyway? <laughs> a few seconds later, a pen tester uh, replies and says, nobody knows exactly how bad it is, uh, but the vendors and consultants say that Major Corp has been throwing money at the problem for weeks. Oh, boy. Yeah. <laughs> So the news that they got hacked was only there because they'd been spending money because yeah. they thought they had got it because they heard they got hacked. Yeah. And so That's it was a, just a vicious cycle feeding on itself. Yeah. And they hadn't actually been hacked. It's just that because they thought they did and they spent money, that created the rumor and, the, and it made it look is like this, they had. Is this, did this really happen? I don't know if this really happened or just something that could have happened. It seems but like I can it, see it's very, very plausible. Yeah, exactly. Like it this, seems. Yeah, this is like the stock price tanked because they got hacked, even though they didn't actually get hacked. Right. And they only spent money because they kept thinking that because the CEO wouldn't believe well, or kept getting it, hearing from the rumor mill. It reminds me. Um, uh, you know, rumors can become true, basically. You know, it's funny because sometimes, like, stuff. Was, it, it, sometimes the TechSnap show fails because we don't make a big deal out of stuff that's not a big deal, uh, but the mainstream media is making a big deal out of it. So last week, 
they, they made this huge deal out of the White House being hacked by Russia and Obama's private calendar being shared, and they were hacked through the State Department. Uh, but there was nothing to it, right? It was not a new hack. It was a hack that we covered months ago on the TechSnap program, months and months and months ago. There was really no new information. It was literally a story created completely out of nothing and made a huge deal, created all of this buzz. And it reminds me a lot of this where nothing happens, yet all of a sudden all of these experts are brought on CNN and, and Fox News and MSNBC and they're asked all of these questions about the White House security. They get it all wrong and they, they get they, they completely miss the mark because I get emails from listeners who work at the White House in the IT department that tell yeah, me like that this nobody analysis asked us or we're not allowed to comment right and so you just got some random well, security expert sure he's a security expert but he doesn't know the internals of so, the White House network you know, so he can't answer the question on filter uh, we played a clip from a White House spokesperson who was saying look our network and he says our network is divided in public and he goes into some his, some detail about how the White House security infrastructure is but he's Com- a He's person, wrong. He doesn't actually know no. because it was just explained to him right. briefly or you read a but, memo. But the way this press cycle then builds on top of this, right? Yeah. And so I get this email from a listener who works in the uh, in the White House, in the IT department. He's like, no, 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 no. Look, we have five network segments. They're broken up. Like, and he completely breaks it down for me and it makes mm-hmm. so much more sense. And I realized in this conversation with this guy that this was completely a hype cycle based on absolutely nothing. And it To com- try to push through with foreign surveillance. <laughs> and it completely jives with that with that story that you just yep. read like it's, it's that whole sort of self-perpetuating cycle that builds yeah or our next story yeah same freaking thing same freaking thing so uh hold on let me uh, let me clear okay. this uh wonderful uh, uh confirm my uh there we go hold on wait for it and united yeah. airlines prevents security analysts from boarding after a tweet yeah uh, so, uh, security analyst, uh, I, we talked about this a little bit last week, yeah. maybe? Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. Are, are you and I talked about it. I don't know if we talked uh, about it. Yeah, I don't think we talked about it. Uh, anyway, um, so the guy tweeted that, uh, you know, he was on an, he was on the in-flight Wi-Fi on a flight, and he tweeted out from the flight that, oh, look, I found this weird-looking access point. I wonder if I can poke the, oh, the no, system no. and make the no, oxygen Oh, no, 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 no. We did talk about this in the show. Yeah. We did talk about this oh, in we the talk- show. You broke it down. And you're like, look, this is the report, and they're making. Oh no, no, a- sorry. We had the report that said it might be yeah. possible. This yeah. is this is slightly different. Okay, okay. Uh, so yeah, this guy tweeted some stuff, and then on top of uh, the United not letting him get on his next flight a couple days later, uh, the TSA or FBI or somebody took all his uh, his laptops and all of his electronics uh, without a warrant and won't give them back. No. While they look at them to see if he was actually hacking the airplane, and this whole thing, and and it's funny because as we're uh, so Alan is here because we're getting ready for Linux Fest Northwest, mm-hmm. and one of the guys on our crew happens to be a pilot. Yeah, so it's it's a really good resource, and, he, and he's like, yeah, the in particular, like we talked about when we had the report from the GAO, which was more of people not knowing anything about computers, asking experts very right. vague questions, but. Framing them and they get the answer it's, they want out of them. It, you don't think it's not a fair mis. It's not. I'm not mischaracterizing when I say what the report essentially said was Wi-Fi is now available on these planes. These planes Wi-Fi are connected to the internet. Firewalls exist on the plane separating uh, the public internet and the private infrastructure that runs over IP. But because in theory it is possible to hack well, a firewall, ergo it is possible to breach the the plane via Wi-Fi. Is that essentially what the report said? Kind of. Uh, except for the most airplanes it's not there's no firewall it's right. completely separate systems like, that are not connected together right they're on a wiring gapped. level right yeah, but the report assumed that they were firewall separated yeah basically they, they talked to a couple of people like the FAA and security uh, security experts they didn't talk to somebody who actually yeah. designs airplanes yeah, yeah. Or, or a something. pilot <laughs> yeah exactly uh, and you know 
part of the points they raise maybe have some value, like uh, the pilot has a cell phone or a tablet, and that could have a virus on it. Sure. And, or the pilot could be malicious and, and might and, be able to do something. And to that point, while they're in the cockpit, just to maybe, underscore that, but, the pilot that we've spoken to, he he uses a Windows tablet. Yeah. So he's required to. Yeah. So uh, it is possible it could yeah, be. Yeah, and, and they have specific rules about his personal use of it. Like you can load <laughs> movies on it to watch, but you can't fill it so full that there's not room for the navigation data that you have to download. Yeah. And so on. But that's not tied directly into the navigation system. It, the whole entire point of that tablet is if we give it you a tablet, instead of building it into the dash of the cockpit, it means we can upgrade it every couple of years yeah. without having to tear apart the airplane <laughs> and get it recertified. Yeah. Uh, the entire point is to keep that stuff that needs to be updated and, and isn't uh, secured as much not be part of the airplane. Yeah. So, yes, this entire story. and, and um, It's bogus. Uh, yeah, sorry, we'll talk about in the next episode, the FBI, uh, like today, this week, issued a new warning to airlines telling them to watch out for people plugging into Ethernet ports at their seat when no plane actually has network jacks at your seat. <laughs> I was just going to say. Like, they're talking about ones under your seat that aren't normally meant to be used. It's like, well, if they're not meant to be used by people in the cabin, why are they in the cabin? I've Because they don't actually exist. Have you ever seen an Ethernet port? No. And I've well, I've not looked that closely <laughs> under my seat. Yeah. But even if I did, that's where other people's luggage go. There isn't room for a bunch of network connections. I, I, I when I hear these kinds of things, it sounds like they're they, just trying. Literally, to Literally, they have no idea what they're talking yeah. about, and it's ridiculous. Yeah. All right. It's so, fear mongering, and it's horrible. I loved this one you put in here because it feels like we're back in the '90s. U.S. Yep. blocks Intel from selling Z, from selling the Xeon chips to the Chinese supercomputer project. Yes, because they use it to model, uh, or they might use it, or could have used it, or might have used it in the past uh, to model nuclear explosions for building weapons. Okay, it, sure. it, it reminds me of uh, it reminds me of when uh, when uh, Intel have, made uh, the jump to Pentium. Yeah, that 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 same restriction came in, and yeah. like they started blocking. Well, I remember uh, AMD used to have a site where they would have all their processor models and uh, like a BOGO MIPS or some uh, speed rating, and it made it easier. It, Especially when in, uh, AMD had those model numbers that didn't correspond to yes. the speed. Yes. The, the model number corresponded to how fast they think they it, wanted compared to an to old Pentium 4. Yeah. Yes. Or something like like a couple <laughs> of generation old processors. Yes. yes. Um, and <laughs> that was so this the, one actually gave you a speed rating. And because the, the US law was if it's over the speed rating, you can't export it to Iran or China or whatever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I kind of wish they had something like Intel's ARC, the mm-hmm. ARK to Intel.com mm-hmm. where you can mm-hmm. look at the processors and compare mm-hmm. them. Actually, AMD had something like that for a while. They probably still do. Anyway, I haven't bought an AMD in Hey, uh, those of you looking for love and using Match.com, yes. where, watch out. HTTP-only login page puts millions of passwords at risk for Match.com users. Yeah, so if you're running Wireshark uh, on your network or somebody else is or you're on Wi-Fi at a coffee shop or whatever, uh, when you go to log in, the, it's sent over plain text. So anybody sniffing traffic sees your password in plain text. I, I, like, I remember in like the 90s when everybody transitioned to using HTTPS for login mm-hmm. to get away from this. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Thank goodness that we have tools like Wireshark and they're not like prevented and banned. Yes. Uh, and also that we have things like LastPass so we can have a yeah. completely separate, yeah. ridiculously long password for everything. And so if it does happen, they only get some gibberish. Last but not least, 
OKCupid, not Match.com. Everybody knows that. All right, Chinese hacker groups among I, first to target fish, but anyway, <laughs> oh. <laughs> don't pay money. <laughs> FetLife.com. Uh, Chinese hacker groups among first to target networks isolated from the internet. Alan, what the hell is this story about? This is uh, targeting air-gapped <clears throat> computers. <laughs> yeah, what using uh, temperature, heat, what lasers? Uh, well, I, I would imagine probably like USB sticks or something like oh, uh, the US not did so when they. Uh, uh, attacked um, the Natanz or whatever? Yes, yes. In fact, Stuxnet. Yes, and we're talking, uh, yeah, FireEye has been uh, uh, doing digging on this. They picked up on it after some malware used by the group, uh, AP, the APT group that we've talked about before. Mm-hmm. And then since then, they've been digging into this whole thing. Uh, and this whole, a lot of this article is based off some statements from uh, Jen Whedon, the manager of strategic analysis with FireEye. Uh, it seems uh, they say they say uh, this is from FireEye. It seems that they've been successful and being good at deploying this. Uh, the organization targeted has tar- has lax security postures. They'll go after those. Uh, they say APT will infiltrate without needing to resort to more advanced, sophisticated attacks in some of these more uh, um, uh, lax organizations, and that way they don't tip their hand. Mm-hmm. They say countries primarily targeted by APT, since we've talked about them, have been India, South Korea, Malaysia, Vietnam, Thailand, Saudi Arabia, and the U.S. Yep, uh, mostly countries close to China, and then oil-producing countries in the U.S. Huh. I, I'm. <clears throat> it looks like they they say the APT the APT group has developed. Uh, yeah. So this is uh, APT thirty, which is different than APT one. Oh. Uh, uh, oh, I'm sorry. I misunderstood. Yeah. I thought APT. I thought it was the same group. So this. Well, is no, APT just stands for Advanced Persistent. I know. Threat. I know. I just thought they so were. So this is group number group. thirty, which is of the groups they've identified. Uh, but it, they're developing tools that are designed to move from systems ah, connected yes. to the internet to yes. those that aren't connected. Right. Uh, this group has existed so, since uh, 2005, is, they say. This is kind of different version of air-gapped. Uh, it's not truly air-gapped. It means it's not connected to the internet, but if I get you know, if I get into the secretary's machine, then she's allowed under the private network, mm-hmm. where air-gapped means it's not connected to the outside right. at all. It's slightly yeah. different. But basically, if you can get on a USB stick or, or whatever way that they use to transfer data between the air gap systems and the regular systems, then you can push a virus in. Uh, like, for example, uh, when we covered the story two years ago or something about the the Russians uh, paying a Canadian guy to smuggle data out of uh, the, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. naval base, mm-hmm. uh, the air gap computers there only used floppy disks. Well, and, and they say here that the and group... And so he had to smuggle out floppy disks. They say the group designed malware components with worm-like capabilities that can infect removal drives such as USB sticks and hard drives. So those devices then would transfer the malware to computers that were not connected to the internet. Yeah, and they would uh, collect all the data and have it ready so when that USB stick came back, they could load the data on the USB stick so and then get it back out to APT the So APT30's uh, uh, trick of the trade is designing malware for computers not connected to the internet specifically yeah. and then collecting data from That's them. specifically getting machines that are supposed to... Yeah, leaking data to the internet from machines that are not connected to the internet, which is kind of, you know, that's the whole point of air gapping is not letting that data get out somehow, and they've found a way around it. Now, uh, I'm but so it's, glad. But it's mostly lack security posture, and, and why are you using USB sticks to shuttle data? And so on. Yeah, that is a good point. Uh, and really what you want is uh, basically the equivalent of an airlock, where mm-hmm. uh, you're mm-hmm. making sure, kind of a, a bastion host between mm-hmm. the outside world and the air gap network, mm-hmm. so the virus can't get into the air gap system when it comes, you know, don't trust the USB stick that's been on the, <laughs> been in a computer yeah. on the real internet. You need to, yeah. Alan, yep. I am so glad it hasn't been too many weeks before we had a chance to talk about Docker. Thank goodness there is a privilege escalation via Docker. Yeah, and they give a nice command here uh, where one of the parameters is root, please, and you get root on the system. 
Ew. Wait, so if you happen to have gotten access to a user account on a machine and the user is a member of the Docker group, this is the key part, if they're a member of the Docker group, running the following command will give you a root shell. Should yep. I install Docker and try it? You should, <laughs> but it works. You want me to? Let me see, let me see how much it would be involved if I wanted to install Docker it'll, real it'll quick. It'll take a while. You think? Let's find I out. I have no idea. I don't know either. I don't even know what the package is. Let's find out. I'm just saying, I'm just going to call uh, it Docker. The, my, my best uh, one here is the solution is uh, this is a hard fix for Docker because of the design installed. decisions that were made. Uh, specifically, in Docker's defense, they're aware of this uh, particular security uh, issue, although they apparently have no intention of actually fixing it. Uh, hmm. Uh, so they say, uh, halfway down the security document, they do explain that the Docker group is root equivalent and uh, why that's dangerous. It's like, well, I don't think people expect uh, some random user group to be the equivalent of being root because that's kind of the whole point of the root group is that anybody outside of it is not root. <laughs> uh, yeah. Hmm. So that's funny. We were just talking about Docker and security. There you go. Uh, we have an article in one of the episodes coming up. There you go. Uh, I tried to so install, but I don't have the Docker service running yet and all that crap. Okay. So I, it wasn't worth continuing on. But it no, would have no. been fun if I could have done it in the first few seconds. Yeah. Uh, all right. Now, now we just talked about... Uh, the uh, well, no, we just talked about Intel not being able to export uh, processors oh. to China because yeah. of bad things. Now we have the... Uh, uh, arms export stuff uh, happening to Metasploit. Oh. Uh, so Rapid7, which is a company that makes Metasploit, uh, is now being restricted by U.S. arms export uh, rules. And basically, if the user that wants to use Metasploit, the either, either the free community version or the pro-pay version, yeah. or even just the trial of the pro-pay version, yeah. if they're not from the U.S. or Canada, what? Uh, Metasploit has to manually vet them before they can give them a license. Uh, if you're in U.S. and Canada, you can just get a license easily off the website. Uh, if you're outside, you basically have to ask for one very nicely and uh, be background checked and so on. Uh, and if you're from a government outside of the U.S. and Canada, you're just completely restricted to not allowed to have it at all. Not allowed to have Metasploit? Yep. It's considered the equivalent of a box full of guns now. So if I'm Germany, I can't have Metasploit? Yep. If you're, if you're Germany, the government, you can't have Metasploit. I'm guessing there's some backhole for How the hell is that even possible? Uh, well, Metasploit has to manually verify everyone outside of the U.S. and Canada that wants a copy of Metasploit now. Okay. Okay. Now, uh, this doesn't apply. If you already have one, you're okay. They, they have a FAQ about it that we linked here. Uh, but basically, the U.S. government is pressuring them uh, into trying to restrict access to this because they consider it to be equivalent to weapons of Internet destruction. <laughs> I like internet destruction. <laughs> wow, Metasploit. I didn't. I yeah. never. I didn't know I wielded a tool with so much power. Yeah. Ooh. So uh, apparently the equivalent of like you know missiles and landmines or something. Hey, you know I did not expect this, uh, but uh, there are people out there that really, really hate to see HTTP go away. Yeah. Uh, specifically, they want unencrypted HTTP to still be an option. Uh, and, you know, we keep seeing things like Mozilla and Google and so on kind of pushing towards everything being encrypted. And while that makes sense in a lot of cases, uh, NASA, uh, via the White House's GitHub page. I'm sorry, uh, did you say the White House's GitHub page? Yep. Okay. Uh, via their, like, little notes tool or whatever there, uh, they posted some reasons why they think that uh, keeping a non-encrypted option is quite beneficial. Uh, specifically, they're talking about giant amounts of uh, scientific data where encrypting it is kind of a waste of CPU and it's public data anyway. Uh, but specifically, it is when there are many researchers at a university downloading it, 
there's usually the university has something like a squid proxy mm-hmm. that's going to cache it yeah. so that it only gets downloaded from the internet once. And if you're talking like 40 gigabytes of data, that could be a big difference. Uh, but if it goes over HTTPS, it's encrypted, and the proxy can't tell that you're downloading the same thing as I, and so it doesn't cache it, and we use twice as much internet. Right. And this could be this literally is true for a lot actual of things, impact. I on, yeah. Like, and so, like, I'm lot, thinking of like package repos and all kinds of yeah, stuff. Yeah, like downloading. Well, of course, with a package repo, sometimes you want to make sure that the guy on the That's other true. end is really the real guy. That's true. So, it, almost at some point, you're like, do we need a version of like the nun cipher? for SSL, where you still, you you make the connection, you use the identity verification system of SSL, even though that's not great, it's something, (laughs) uh, but then you actually do no null encryption because what you're downloading doesn't need to be encrypted. You just want to make sure that it's not being modified in transit. So I guess Hmm. you still need the Mac. So I don't know if the Nun Cypher gives you that or not. But uh, it's an interesting thought of some of the reasons why keeping unencrypted as an option might be a good thing. Alan, uh, our last story in the roundup is a great demonstration why denying Windows credential administration. I don't even know this uh, the idea. I'm looking at the chart here, but what this is is breaking down denying uh, uh, certain well, so access to malware authors um, because they need access to your credentials more than they need really anything else. Right. And so this is saying um, the bad guys that are trying to infiltrate your network need your logins yeah. more than they need you to run malware, and that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So uh, uh, they have a chart here. They have like, I guess, what is this technically an infograph? I guess. Yeah. All right. We'll call it infograph. They have an infograph breaking it down, breaking down the sin, the sins of Windows sent. Uh, cre- I'm sorry, the sins of Windows credential administration. So specifically, when you do uh, mirror imaging of all your machines, yeah, it means that there's the same credential exists on every machine, right? And it also means every machine can log into every other machine, right? Which is very typical on Windows. Very network. easy for island hopping, right? Yes. Uh, and then you have abdication, right? When you just fail to manage the local accounts. Also right? very common. Every, everything. You put everything through the domain and forget that every machine has some local accounts right. that can log in. And, and when they're mirror image, that means every machine has the same local account. Well, and if you most hack of it times, on one of them, you got it all. Most of the times when you're doing a mirror, you create an intentional local administration account. So that way, if anything ever happens with the domain trust or anything mm-hmm. like that, mm-hmm. you can still log in. And, yeah. you know, in, in, at, the, at, the, at the school district where this was a big problem, students would intentionally try to break the domain trust. Yep. So you had to have a backup like that, and so yep. you would image the same account on every single stinking machine. Right, and uh, having an orchestration system where you have a different password for every machine and you'd be able to look that up somewhere might have been a better approach. But the biggest one is that if you get malware onto one machine, you can sit there and brute force even on the local machine, or you can extract the hash and do it offline uh, and get that password eventually. And once you have it on the one machine, hey, it's the same on every machine in the network. I can just walk around. Or you have the sin of trade-offs, right? Excessive uh, credential lifetimes to reduce service interruptions. If you're not rotating the password so often, you know, you force users to rotate the password all the time, but the sysadmin's accounts are open up to have passwords that last forever. I, I love this one, And though. it's not being changed. Yep. Uh, sins of hygiene, failing to securely store credentials. You know, when you have a network, we have a lot of people that are dealing yep. different with different result roles. You, a I've lot seen of times so many businesses with a spreadsheet full yep. of passwords. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Exactly. Yep. And then also the sin of wishful thinking about two-factor authentication, especially in Windows, it can end up being one-factor authentication, and then that's worse. Uh, and then also the sin of incompleteness. What was that one say? I can't read The that sin one. of incompleteness, securing servers, but not the admin workstations or other yeah. security dependencies like the monitoring system. Yeah. So the servers are all locked down tight, but the sysadmin's local machine is just the Wild West, and he's installing software to try it all the time. There's all kinds of crap on there. Something gets in there, then it has unrestricted access to the servers because you always leave a loophole for the sysmins to get into the servers, right? Hmm. Yes, Alan. Yes. Yep. 
All right, so we'll have a link to this in the show notes if you're on the audio feed and you want to look at the visual diagram because uh, this is it's actually pretty good. Yeah, and uh, for those of you that are administering a Windows network, it, it, <laughs> print this out. Yeah. <laughs> Don't do the these things. Yep. Don't do. Yeah, big red letters. Do not do these things and then print, and then print it out. And uh, we'll have a link in the show notes. In fact, it turns out we have a link to every single thing we've talked about today in the show notes, including Alan's book on ZFS yes. and all of all of the goodies. If you'd like to help make our show even better, go to techsnap.reddit.com, submit stories there, comment, and vote them up. Alan, uh, if I were a pro, now next week, no good. We're not going to be live. It's no good. Because yep. we're do- doing a double. But normally we would be live over at jblive.tv at 2 p.m. Pacific, which is 4 p.m. Eastern, 2100 UTC. Boom, over at jblive.tv or jblive.info if you want the audio-only version of this here stream, which is great at the desk or while commuting. Don't forget about those RSS feeds. We've got those. Don't forget about them torrents. You can also even get this over RSS for a torrent and help us defer some of that bandwidth. Although, you know what? You could earn this guy a buck. Yeah. Download it. <laughs> You're, you're, you're helping Alan out. So. Yes. Well, also, <laughs> it, you know, if you notice anything wrong in it, we can correct it before it goes to print. That'd be good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So. We have actual experts tech reviewing it right now. Uh, and that's yeah, why you book? get 10% off. Yeah, yes. the book, that's why yeah. you get 10% off. Yeah. Because no, I was telling them they should download our shows oh, instead yeah. of using the torrents because that also mm. gives you a buck. Not much. But it, but gives it you, takes your dollars. Yeah, so. I know. I know. They take it from me and give it to you. <laughs> <laughs> and then yeah. we'd love to get a review. We haven't had any reviews or comments for a while on iTunes. Yeah. And while not a lot of you are iTunes users, those of you who are, we'd really appreciate the help because it, it helps, helps discovery. Other, exactly. It helps discovery. Other you want everybody else to watch Texas Right? Too, you right? want to keep us around for a while, so that would help a lot with reviews <laughs> in iTunes. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning this week's episode of TechSnap. We'll see you right back here next week. Next week.